Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to revisit the most legendary SummerSlam of them all, SummerSlam 1992. Kyush, how crazy is it that it took until this year for a company to run Wembley Stadium again? I mean, it's crazy, and then again, it's not crazy, because for whatever reason... People inside of WWE seem to not think this was successful or good or a a thing worth remembering or treasuring at all. Triple H came out literally like a week ago and was like, eh, wasn't that great. What the fuck are you talking about? We'll talk about the business. The pay-per-view numbers weren't great, but in the context of the time, it it was it, that was completely understandable. They viewed this as a unique failure, but it did kind of the business you would expect based on all the factors that were there. But it's the most well, legendary and revered SummerSlam of them all. But go ahead, I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say that, like, even beyond that, though, like, this market, the British market, has been fucking thirsty for so goddamn long. And, like, everybody knows that you can go there and make tons of money, and then just nobody ever does. Why? It's funny. How much must it chap Vince's ass that they took the payday from Cardiff and did the show there when they could have sold out Wembley. Like, I have no doubt that they, if they had done the Clash at the Castle show at Wembley Stadium, that they would have sold the place out. Like, that for the first time they did a pay-per-view back in England was going to be massive, but it was a one-time thing. If they're going to go back there and sell out Wembley, I think it's got to be a WrestleMania now. Yeah. And that's why they had John Cena come out and be like, well, yeah. well, well, we're eventually going to come back and do WrestleMania here. No, the fu- it's going to be like five years. You've already sold the rights for the next five. As, as long as you know the city of London ponies up and writes us a nice fat check, we'll do it for sure. But that's the funniest thing is that like they didn't do it in Wembley because they didn't think they needed to. Why bother yeah. trying to do it in Wembley if it's not necessary? They never imagined that AEW would sell out Wembley Stadium. And uh, I didn't either, but here we are. Here we are. I remember when you asked me what I thought it would do, and I said I thought it could like beat Clash at the Castle. And then I immediately was like, oh, that's insane. What am I, what am I talking about? And then they sold that number of tickets practically the first day. We were on here in front of you guys, like speculating, thinking we were being the most optimistic people in the world, being like, oh, man, I bet you they can get 50. Oh, that's what an incredible number. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It appears they've done 80,000. I don't know how many are paid and how many are comped, but they're going to have 80,000 people there. It's incredible. This is one of the biggest, most incredibly important matches ever in the or shows ever in the history of wrestling. There's just really not another way to put it. Yeah. So here, this show reminds me so much of the Royal Rumble in San Antonio. It, out of nowhere, at a time where the company is totally cold, they decide, let's run a stadium show to show how big we still are. In this case, they don't have to do any crazy promotional gimmicks because there's so much demand in the UK for this show that they practically sell the place out the first day they put tickets on sale. But domestically, their business is down dramatically. I mean, they are in free fall compared to 1991 and 91 was down from 90 and 90 was down from 89. Like they've 
fallen off a cliff. But, you know, when they ran their tour of Europe after WrestleMania, they drew huge. And in particular, Bret Hart was ridiculously over on that tour. For whatever reason, Bret Hart was always massively over everywhere other than America. I don't know what it was. Was it that he wrestled kind of a European style? I think it was that, that he had like a little bit of credibility to him. But also, European like pop idols and like teen sex symbols were like very different from American ones. And they were all pretty much like Bret Hart. Like sort of everyday guys dudes i mean just guys who like look like your everyday kind of dude but athletic bodies like it's just he was different from everybody else in wwe in such a way and he just really tapped into that market i i couldn't really explain it but we've seen it with other guys throughout the years too so they're dealing with all kinds of scandals at this point we've got steroids we've got the ring boy scandal. We've got allegations of sexual assault and harassment against Vince McMahon. We're going to do the lightning round in a minute, but first I want to do what I'm calling the libel round in which we are going to go over all the allegations made in an article that Penthouse published in the summer of 1992, pretty much all of which are potentially libelous but none of which they were ever sued for. Yeah. I also want to point out just like to get ahead of this, that there's no reason for anybody to clip any of these things from us and pretend like we were the ones who are positing any of this information, not our information. We're not the ones speaking the libel. Please. Let's just get a disclaimer out there. This was an article that was published like 30 years ago. I'm just saying this was published in penthouse, not saying whether this is true or not. It's a fact that penthouse published all these things. And when we eventually talk about the Davy boy thing later, I just also want to say that's not our (laughs) opinion. It's just what was written in Brett's book. Okay. Starting off Billy Jack Haynes, which, not a name I was expecting to have pop up here, said that no. homosexuality was rampant in the WWF dressing room, which, I don't know, mind your own fucking business, Billy Jack. That sounds like some dumb shit that Billy Jack would say, because he's a hater. Um, does make me wonder who between No. <laughs> Billy Graham claimed Hogan did cocaine on a flight, and that... He injected Hogan with steroids at WrestleMania three because Hogan had so much scar tissue on his ass that he couldn't get the needles through. The idea that Hogan would be walking through the dressing room like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Who's going to give me the steroids? Oh, Billy Graham. Yeah. Billy Graham knows how. (laughs) He also claimed that. Uh, like Hogan would do cocaine before his matches. Why is Billy Graham out here burying Hulk Hogan like this? Also, let's be clear, Billy Graham. Let's, if you <laughs> want to say for sure that you never did cocaine before any of your matches, I'm going to call bullshit. David Schultz claimed Hogan sold drugs in Tampa when he was breaking into the business. How would David Schultz know that? I have no idea. It's probably true. I bet he did like <laughs> sell weed on the boardwalk. It wasn't like he was getting any. It wasn't like he was making enough money to live when he was working in Memphis. No, he was fucking working for uh, Matsuda, making no money, playing bass on the weekends. I'm sure he was selling weed at the shows. 
And Matsuda broke his leg so he couldn't work. Yeah. Barry Orton claimed that Terry Garvin propositioned him for sex in exchange for a job. I just want to say, I, I, I've loved the idea that, like, the person who wrote this article, like, calling up random wrestling personalities and being like, hey, is there anybody you want to bury in this magazine <laughs> yeah. article? Yeah, who have you got beef with? Terry Garvin, huh? What'd he do? Uh, tried to suck my dick. <laughs> Lord Littlebrook claims what? that the... <laughs> <laughs> Why is he in here? <laughs> Claimed that the midget division was dropped after one of the wrestlers complained that an executive had propositioned him for sex. An executive? <laughs> Named Pat Patterson, I guess. What the fuck are we doing here? Or Terry Garvin. Who knows what he was into? <laughs> Just Terry Garvin wandering around backstage in a suit. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> I don't know. Some of these guys were apparently into young boys, and maybe that was the closest thing. I don't know. Listen, listen. I, I, there's no amount of horrible behavior that I will not 100% believe was taking place. It's the, it's the wrestling business. But, like, <laughs> this is just so wild. I was not expecting Lord Littlebrook to hey, pop up. Hey, we gotta stop putting those uh, midget wrestlers on TV because all my executives want to fuck them. What are we talking about? Uh, Bruno Sammartino recounted Mel Phillips performing sexual acts on an 11-year-old boy. Hey, Bruno, why didn't you call the police if that happened? Isn't this yeah, what Joe hey, Paterno got fired for? I say, two Pennsylvania icons, both of them looking yeah. the other way. Like, I do was Bruno did Bruno actually I can't that's the thing I can't remember is like did he say he witnessed this or he just heard about it because if he witnessed it he should have called the police like I, that said like the Mel Phillips stuff is like oh but could like Linda McMahon once said they fired him but then rehired him but told him he needed to stay away from the young boys which again is exactly what happened with Jerry Sandusky yep Coincidentally, I just rewatched the HBO movie on Joe Paterno, so this is all very fresh in my mind. It's just fascinating, like, the number of molestations that were probably happening in the 70s and 80s that we now know were exactly this style covered up is just out of fucking control. I, JR had an episode of his podcast a couple months ago where Conrad asked him about somebody and JR just casually was like, oh yeah, that dude was a pedophile. <laughs> like, it's just like, oh yeah, like, oh yeah, that guy, that guy hung out with Grizzly Smith. Like they were both into young girls. Like, okay, JR, one, okay, I'm glad we're coming clean now. But again, nobody could have called the police about any of this. The sad thing is, is that the wrestling business, especially the way it was then, is that it mostly attracted people who couldn't get a job anywhere else in society or uh, were of weird enough temperament that this weird circus bullshit seemed like a good thing to do. And a lot of those people were fucked up (laughs) and still are. Rita Chatterton uh, recounted being raped by Vince in his limousine after he told her. He would put her on a $500,000 contract, but she had to do sexual favors for him. I mean, I she mean, she stands by these allegations to this day. 
And here's the thing, like people tried to dismiss her at the time. This is exactly the shit that Vince got busted for doing recently. Is she suing? Is she suing Vince now under New? Because New York has like the extended uh, statute of limitations. I think she might have actually filed a suit against Vince recently. Good. Now that it's come forward that it's not just her by herself, but a parade of women who he's done this to. And Vince's limo driver, who I think also um, you know, backed up the Rita Chatterton allegations, claimed Vince would do cocaine in the back of the car and make him drive dangerously fast. Which, <laughs> mm, it's tough to believe that that's not true, huh? <laughs> Man, Bruce Pritchard's story about Vince driving like 120 miles an hour in the middle of a driving rainstorm and him like growing devil horns as he laughed at Bruce in the passenger seat. Like, I've had that image in my head so much ever since I saw that episode of like JR and Bruce just looking at Vince as he like doesn't even look at the road, just is looking at them and cackling maniacally. Whew. What what could have been fueling him there? Uh-huh. So, <laughs> this is what we're dealing with. Like, we've got Geraldo Rivera and Phil Donahue. Have you ever seen the, I think it's the Donahue episode, where they have Vince and Bruno and long-haired perm Dave Meltzer on together? No, I have not seen oh. that. Oh, this is on YouTube. It's epic. It's so funny. Like, imagine the idea of Vince now walking into a room with Dave Meltzer in it. <laughs> Impossible. Never. No. no. Much less like, oh, my former top star who hates my guts and the journalist who knows all the dirt on me. Yeah, let's do that interview. Just walked right into that one. Holy shit. Uh, our last pay-per-view was WrestleMania 8, where we had Randy Savage beat Ric Flair for the WWF title, and Hogan beat Sid by DQ in the main event. Um, the Ultimate Warrior made a surprise return after the match to save Hogan from Sid and Papa Shango. Sid would subsequently get fired after WrestleMania for refusing to take drug tests. Which... I mean, he was obviously on drugs and made no bones about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, he just, uh, my understanding is he would just refuse to take them. Warrior would just take them and fail. Warrior's just like, well, what are they going to do? And the answer was nothing. It's like, I've already been fired by this company, but they're so star thirsty, they're just going to hire me back. And that, maybe he's the one who passed that lesson on to Sid. It's like, hey, just do whatever the fuck you want. They'll just hire you again. And that is the lesson that Sid took to the day. This show was originally announced. I don't know if it was announced or just rumored for Washington, D.C., but then they changed their mind and decided to do it in London instead. And quite simply, they could fill a stadium in London, whereas they would probably have struggled to sell out a normal arena in D.C. for this show. Right. I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, if you have that, I wonder how that opportunity came about. Did someone from Britain contact them to like, it's not like Vince would just have a wild hair one day and be like, we're running the biggest stadium in all of Britain. They had run a tour in England after WrestleMania. So I assume they had some discussions with Wembley stadium when they did it, when they were over there for that. It was a hugely successful tour. They were selling out every night, but maybe like, 
they start to feel like, oh, we're only going to sell like 2,000 tickets to the SummerSlam. We got to figure something else out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the number they at the time they claimed they sold it out the first day. I don't think they quite did that, but I've heard over 50, 60,000 tickets the first day, which is remarkable when you consider that people had to physically go to the arena, like the yes. stadium box office to get their tickets back. then. not like today where you just click some buttons on a website and get your tickets delivered to your phone. I want you to imagine like all the people who complain now about having to deal with the situation where like you tried to log on and you're in the queue and maybe you'll get a ticket and maybe you won't or maybe they'll sell out. Yeah, that sucks. Imagine you had to do like a half hour drive to the arena to attempt to buy the show only yeah. then to find out it was sold out. Yeah, there's thousands of people camped out when you get there. Yeah, that's a nightmare. I don't know if these amounts are dollars or pounds, but $41.31.2050 were the ticket prices I found. Pay-per-view tickets have gotten a lot more expensive. That they definitely have. Uh, yeah. Hey, what ringside seats to WrestleMania in Philadelphia are $10,000 each. Fuck. I and can't imagine. Look, I, look, I love wrestling. I love it. I cannot, I would never spend $10,000 on tickets to a wrestling show. I uh, wouldn't spend no. a, I wouldn't spend a thousand dollars on tickets to a wrestling show. It's not even like, it's just the principle of it. Even if I were, even if I were really rich, I would still be like, I'm not dropping that much money just on the tickets. That's insane. Also, and here's the thing that's always been true about floor seats. It's the biggest scam in the world. Because oh, if you're awful. not in the first three rows, why would you even want it? No, you can't see shit. You get to look at the back of somebody's head. We were at a house, like a super house show, the one that had like John Cena and Roman Reigns at in Detroit a couple years ago. We were literally five rows away from the ramp on the floor. and We couldn't see a goddamn thing. Yeah. And we're both tall. Yeah. Like, I don't know how kid, like kids have no chance. Short no. dudes, women, no chance. <sighs> so it sounds like they were planning on doing Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels for the Intercontinental title when SummerSlam was going to be in D.C. And it may have been a ladder match because Bret had pitched the ladder match to Vince, making him swear. He's like, Vince, I have a match idea for you. But you have to swear to me, you won't let anybody else do it if I tell you about it. And Vince swears to him, and then he fucks him over and lets Sean do it instead of him. Why would you believe that, honestly? <laughs> Don't believe was, Vince. I mean, not the first or the last wrestler to be stupidly naive. But yeah, Brett just fell for Vince so many times. <sighs> he also believed he was going to pay him a million dollars a year for 20 years. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> Didn't even make it one year. Um, so they changed it to Brett versus Davy Boy because it's in England and Bulldog's going to get a huge pop there. Uh, Brett says that was him. Like he went to Vince and said, like, hey, if we're going to do the show in England, like, why don't we have me lose the title to Davy Boy instead? Because he'll be really over there. First time Brett fucked over Sean. First shot fired in that feud, really. First one across the bow. I don't think they actually had any issues with each other at that point. I think they were good, but like, it was the right, it's obviously the right call. I, this show, 
I it probably would have done great no matter what, but having Bulldog in the title match really helped. I mean, oh. if anything, the question is why not just have Bulldog win the world title here? I mean, that is the question. Maybe they thought it would be too difficult to just kind of artificially like shove him up into that spot, but I yeah. don't. The actual title match for here isn't any less artificially manufactured. Like the Warrior and Savage don't have an issue coming into this. No, they have to inv- they invent a brilliant story, but it's totally pulled out of their ass. And it's the same story they could have just done with Bulldog. <laughs> yeah. Surprisingly, the highlight of the build for Brett and Bulldog was actually Diana Hart Smith doing some really emotional promos about how the match was tearing their family apart and she didn't think, you know, Brett and Davey could ever be the same kinds of friends they were again after this. Stunning how good she was here. It's so funny because she does an interview on this show where, like, it's almost like I'm sure that they fed her what lines to say, but like, it's almost like she can't quite remember them. But like, she's selling the emotion of it so yeah. much that it makes it more impactful. Yeah, that she just like can barely put her words together. She's so upset about this. Yeah, I mean, um, she's very good. They interviewed other members of the Hart family too. They interviewed Stu and Helen. Um, uh, they interviewed Owen, who said he thought Brett would win. And then they interviewed Bruce Hart, who <sighs> said that Brett had a big ego and it would cost him the match. Bruce just angling for that match with Brett. Keith called up like WWE offices like 45 times. He's like, hey, where's my interview? Why'd you ask all of them and not me? Hey, 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 what about Keith? In his book, he claims he was supposed to have a meeting with Vince McMahon around this time to take over creative for the company. But oh, Vince Keith? couldn't. B- Big Mac, as he refers to him, couldn't make the meeting. Wait, 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 wait. Keith Hart said that? Bruce Hart. Not Bruce Keith. Hart, right. So Vince McMahon is going to have a meeting to discuss giving creative free, like create the book to Bruce Hart. But then Vince does no shows his own meeting for that. Couldn't make the, couldn't make the meeting. It turned out. No one in the history of the world has ever been more full of shit than Bruce Hart. No, like a hundred percent. This is something Vince pawned off on one of his stooges and just baby faced himself to Bruce and Brett about it. Yeah, Bruce is going to make it seem like, oh, yeah, yeah, me, I had a meeting with the big guy. No, you begged for a meeting that Vince did not want to go to. And he rehired Bruce Pritchard so he could send him to it. Yep. Who do I hate enough to send to this meeting? Bruce! (laughs) Bruce is still in the shithouse. Let's send him. Uh, Brett would recall in his book trying and failing to get in touch with Bulldog for weeks and weeks leading up to this show. Um, Bulldog was suspended, and then he had a knee injury, although Brett just openly said in a shoot interview he didn't believe he was hurt. He thought he faked it. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That's because Davey is in the midst of a terrible drug addiction. The day before the show, Brett finally... You know, gets, you know, he meets up with Bulldog and is like, like, what the fuck? I've been calling you for weeks. Why didn't you ever call me back? Davey Bull broke down and confessed he hadn't worked out all summer because he had been smoking crack with Jim Neidhart every day for the months leading up to this show. Like, 
the never-ending nightmare of that summer where you only hang out with Jim Neidhart and smoke crack every day. That is so dark that, like, his days, he woke up. I'm sure he lied to Diana and told her he was going to work out. And then he would drive over to Neidhart's house and they would go score crack and sit around and smoke it together. Like, as the idea... Yeah, the idea that he comes out of this enough at all to have not only this match, but like any sort of career whatsoever. Crack's not something that you can just do recreationally. Just the darkness in these men's souls, like the demons they're trying to silence. You can't smoke crack. Like you're a professional athlete. Davy Boy at this point is one of the, I don't know, 25 most famous and successful wrestlers in the world. Yeah. I would say he has to be, yeah. Like a genuine the biggest celebrity. Match of his career, but I think it's that it's probably that pressure that ha- like that pressure of having to deliver a match here and the insecurities he had drives him to just drown himself in drugs. Man. There's something about that stampede territory, man. Like I don't <laughs> Something about this family that is what was there to do in Cal? What was there in Calgary to do other than drugs? That's a fair point. It's just maybe it's more incredible that Brett and Owen make it out without ever notably doing drugs of any sort. Yeah, Brett says he did a little bit of coke, but you know, everyone did coke in the eighties. Well, this is the thing. This because of who Brett is. He said he stopped because he felt like it was making him a worse wrestler, and he couldn't tolerate that. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that Owen and <laughs> Brett were driven by something totally different that they were addicted to. Yeah, Brett. Well, Brett. Brett was also addicted to the ladies, but that's healthier than crack. How did this family produce Owen? Is I guess the question that we should answer. What a nice, because what a nice guy. Like no one. I keep I've waited for so long to find out like something bad about him. And the worst we can come up with is he didn't call Steve Austin after he heard him, which, you know, is bad. But I'm sure he just like felt so awful that he couldn't bring himself to do it. Yeah, he played pranks on guys literally constantly. But every single guy he ever pulled a prank on was like, yeah, I fucking love Owen. That shit was funny. Yeah. It seems like everybody says greatest father, greatest husband, greatest brother, greatest friend. In a business where everybody buries everybody, everyone liked him. And this, again, is a family where everyone, everyone turned out to be a con man, a drug addict, or both. (laughs) Except Brett, who's just kind of whiny and self-righteous. But if that was my family... Dude, I think I would turn out to be a miserable prick, too. It's if so I was symbolic. To, yeah. It's so symbolic that here in the biggest moment of his career, his big chance, his opportunity to showcase his talents, he is saddled with having to carry his useless family member who couldn't not smoke. The bare minimum bar he had to clear was don't smoke crack with Nightheart all summer. And he couldn't even do that. The albatross Brett is just carrying with him that is his family. How much they weighed him down like an anchor all throughout his career. I feel like not enough is made of that. His whole time on top... And maybe part of the reason why Vince like 
didn't want him to be his top yeah. guy is that every time he's on top, the rest of the hearts, here they come looking for their piece. Yeah. Just like, Oh, can you hire Nightheart? Can you hire back Davy boy? Can you hire Bruce? Like, fuck. No, like I, yeah, that's the thing. The thing about Vince, Vince is like, no, I, I like you. I don't like your useless family of drug addicts and clowns <laughs> and losers. Like Bruce Hart, seriously? Yeah. Nightheart for the fifteenth time. Oh man. But yeah, so Brett sits Davy down. Goes through the entire match with him, spot by spot. We're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to... Goes through the whole thing with him. Brett says he spent all summer thinking about this match. Like, before he would go to sleep at night, he would look up at the ceiling and he would visualize the match. He, When he was tanning, he would close his eyes and he would imagine this match spot by spot by spot. And he would change it and he would think, spent months thinking about this match. Which is fascinating how much of a departure that is from the old like, oh no, we call it in the ring. We don't plan our matches out. That's not real wrestling. I mean, it's been objectively proven this is the best way to do wrestling, right? Right. Like, look, calling it in the ring works for some stuff. Like, you should be open to improvise if, like, certain things happen. But, like, the best way to create matches that are, like, seamless and smooth and go is to, like, plan them out ahead of time, of course. At least the big spots. Why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Because Davey Boy will forget it all because he was smoking crack with Nightheart. Here's the thing, yeah. He couldn't have planned for that. He spends all summer planning it, and then he give, puts him in a headlock, and Davy Boy says, I fucking forgot the whole thing. Oh, Brett, I'm fucked. I don't remember anything. <laughs> Can you imagine, <laughs> imagine the horror in that moment? Like, all of uh, us have at our job, like, something that's, like, a really yeah. big special moment, right? And, like, there's, like, the one worst thing anybody could do right before it starts. Like, oh, yeah. On Super Bowl Sunday at my sports bar, if suddenly somebody was like, oh, shit, I forgot how to cook. What? Uh, how do you make chicken again? Oh, no. My recurring nightmare where I'm in a super important meeting and I realize I didn't prepare anything for it. And I've just got like an infinitely long table of people staring at me as I have yes. nothing to say. Exactly. Brett is in that moment in front of 80,000 people and a worldwide pay-per-view audience and not only does he have to carry this fucking albatross around his neck he's got to put him over like it's (laughs) he should have just beat him he should have just double crossed him and pinned him that's another amazing thing brett says he asked vince if he he was like hey you want to hear the finish i've got for the match david boy he says vince said no then said, surprise me. So he literally could have done anything. Yeah. Like, of course, Davey's going to win. They've agreed right. on that. But, like, Vince was literally like, nah, just, you know, I, want, I trust you. Just, I want to see what you come up with. It'll be more interesting if I don't know what's coming. And what he, he comes up with is a brilliant finish, an absolutely beautiful finish. It's an old, like, it's he said, it's an 
Burke finish. He didn't invent it. He saw it and just kind of, it was one of those things Brett would do that makes him better than almost any wrestler I've ever, like, this is just a unique Bret Hart thing. He said he would come up with finishes. When he would come up with a good finish, he would write it down in a notebook. And when he would have a big match, he would go back to his notebook and look through it to see, like, okay, what would be a good finish for this match? And, like, he would come up with finishes that, like, even were outside of his normal means. Like, Jericho has that story of, like, they were at, like, Owen's funeral or something like that. And Bret Hart's like, oh, man, you know a bunch of Mexican uh, roll-ups, right? Can you, like, teach me one real quick? Like, this match really needs, like, a really sophisticated lucha roll-up, but I don't know how to do any. Bret Hart is one of the only wrestlers I would actually call an artist. Yes. Like, I just, he takes it to a higher form than almost anyone else I've ever seen. There are wrestlers who are better athletes, who are more charismatic. I just think he had a creativity to him that no one else did. Like, when we have the greatest wrestler alive debate, there's a lot of different ways that that needs to go. But, like, in terms of, like, who is the best at plotting out and having like matches, I don't think that there's really a debate. It's it's Brett. Like it's just it's always been Brett. It'll always best, be Brett. By far the best finishes. It's oh, so yeah. many. It feels like every single one of his big matches had a brilliant ten out of ten finish to it. And really, that's why we remember so many of them so well. There are a lot of boring ass middles to Bret Hart matches. That I think sure. that that's okay to say, but they're never boring at the end when it counts. And that's really all that matters. Our WWF title match is going to be Savage defending the title against the Ultimate Warrior. These two have an incredible history. Savage cost Warrior the world title. Warrior beat Savage in a retirement match at the previous WrestleMania. They can't talk about any of that. They don't want to bring up any of that because... They're both baby faces. They don't want to reference that Savage used to be a bad guy and all that stuff. So instead, they come up with this story that Perfect, Mr. Perfect, manager of Ric Flair, starts claiming that one of Savage or Warrior has bought his services for this match, and he won't say who. This is genius, because... We know that Savage has been bad before, <clears throat> but we also know, like, there's, like, hints here and there that Warrior might be headed in that direction, too. And, like, it's really unclear what it is that it would be. Like, this is a really compelling story. Yeah, it could go either way. I mean, there's so many different things that could happen here that all would be totally believable. Now... One weird note is they changed the world title at the TV tapings right after this show. Flair beats Savage for the title. I assume that the answer to why they didn't do the title change here at SummerSlam is just they thought that Warrior and Savage would draw a better buy rate than Flair and Savage having a rematch after they had wrestled at WrestleMania. If triple threat matches were a thing that they understood existed yeah. at this point, that's what this would have been. Yeah, because Flair is just left without anybody to work with here. It's very yeah, strange I'll, that he's not he has no match. He has like four segments on this show, yeah, but he never actually wrestles. 
Now, he's out there in his robe and his gear. I don't know why he had to wear the robe. Did Vince have a thing that, like, he didn't like him wearing suits or something? I wonder what it was. It felt like in the WWF, he was always in the robe, even when he wasn't wrestling. Maybe Vince thought it made him look small, because he was small compared to the rest of the roster, especially the main event. Same way CM Punk was only ever allowed to wear his wrestling gear. Exactly, yeah. Um, the big story in the locker room is that um, Savage and Elizabeth have split up. She's left him. And apparently she's staying at Hogan's place. Yep. Lust in his eyes. Oh, yeah. Hogan's wife and his kids were there, too. I know. I'm <laughs> joking. There's not. <laughs> Elizabeth is fleeing an abusive situation and staying with a friend, which is a very common thing to have happen in that situation. Yes, my joke was very tasteless. And in fact, Hogan, this might be the nicest thing Hogan's actually done in his life. Yeah. Um, Hogan, not on the show at all. Not even mentioned. First ever WWF pay-per-view without a Hogan match, I believe. It's, he's not, like, on the outs or anything right now, is he? He's just not here? He's just laying low. Um, he's had to get off the juice. He's done the Arsenio Hall appearance where he lied and said he only did steroids, like, three times or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, he doesn't come back until WrestleMania, and then he does he does WrestleMania, and he does King of the Ring and the European Tour, and then he's gone. He's Right, he's eyeing Japan at this point. This is when he's starting to realize that the IWGP title is the real title. Yeah, he's about to go make some money and chase his real dream. Um, the other thing, the original plan was for LOD to win the tag titles from Money Inc. here, but Hawk was so messed up they had to change it. They couldn't put the tag belts on. Jesus Christ, that. this show. <laughs> This might be the most dysfunctional time ever in this company's history, which is really saying something. Hawk is just gobbling pills, and you can tell he's not all there during the match. So they can't put the tag belts on LOD, and they're not going to have Money Inc. beat LOD. So instead, they have Money Inc. lose the tag belts to the natural disasters on a house show a couple weeks before this. That must have been pretty surprising if you've been watching the TV come into this, but like missed a couple weeks. And then you come to this show and you're like, wait, why are all the belts on the wrong people? What's happening? The card makes any sense. The Undertaker wrestles Kamala. and st- He'd been feuding with the Berserker all summer, but instead he works with Kamala here. It's a strange card. Martel versus Michaels is heel versus heel. I don't. <laughs> Was yeah, they threw that one together kind of out of nowhere. I don't know, was Marty Jannetty supposed to be here and got fired for the 15th time? That's probably right. Yeah. All right. I don't know how, but we still have a lightning round to do after <laughs> all that. Yeah, let's go. Are you? Re- we've talked about crack. We've talked about Lord Littlebrook. <laughs> Can you imagine the places we're going to go with this lightning round? I'm terrified by what this hammer is going to be. I'm not ready. (laughs) The Undertaker squashed a jobber named Bruce Mitchell. Do you think that's a coincidence that that's the guy who wrote for uh, PW Insider? No, I don't. But God, that's some petty shit right there. It's a time-honored tradition in wrestling. Because remember when uh, Herb Abrams had a guy named Davey Meltzer get up? 
If I were a guy doing jobs for big shows, I would call myself <laughs> Dave Meltzer. Oh, I would go with Brian Alvarez. Yeah, just like, hey, uh, you want to bring me on and let uh, your big your Ryback squash Brian Alvarez? Yes, I do. Um, a lightning round within the lightning round for all the rumors in the sheets. Sting oh, jumping to the WWF, Flair going back to WCW, Brett going to WCW, the Steiners going to the WWF, DiBiase going to WCW. Half of these actually panned out. That's not a bad hit, right, for gossip. What possibility would you have placed on Sting coming to WWF at this point? Because I mean, WCW is on its ass. But you know, why would he really? want to stay there? But they always paid him well. Right. Yeah, the, he was like the only guy they paid in this era. They knew they couldn't lose him. But do you think Sting ever looks back and he's just like, if I had come to this company in like 93, I would have been the top guy. So, oh, he would have been so huge. Man, yeah. if he'd come over, imagine if he goes there instead of, you know, Crockett in 87 when they bought out the UWF. The, with he's, the, in the built for these he's so much better than the warrior he's so much more reliable he's so much more relatable he's such a nicer guy he is like the lineal hogan that they were looking for yeah. he is he's exactly a better wrestler than the warrior he's a better promo he's perfect for this company ah <sighs> what could have been the World Health Organization published guidelines for combat sports to deal with HIV. They suggested that any fight in which a competitor bled should be stopped until the competitor was no longer bleeding. Pro wrestling did not abide those recommendations. That That's one of those things that I think is not made enough about. Yeah. Like, AIDS was a scourge. Like, the, the death toll... couldn't play in the NBA. There was a moment where, like, AIDS was so prevalent and so coming up that there was genuine concern that, like, literally anybody could get it because so many people had contracted it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, in the 90s, you got, like, promotions like ECW where people were bleeding on each other all the time, not to mention sharing intravenous drugs in the back. It's amazing we don't have more HIV stories in wrestling. It really is. Remarkably, I have never heard of anyone in wrestling having HIV. I've heard of another. I mean, there's a number of documented hepatitis cases. Yes. But, like, it, it's stunning that it never happened. HIV, yeah. Uh, Bruce Pritchard was rehired to work as J.J. Dillon's assistant in talent relations. And he was a uh, fucking... That's a fate worse than death. A fucking disease they never got rid of. God, he'd been gone over a year at this point, but Vince always had a soft spot for Bruce. That's the interesting thing. I honestly can't tell you why. He'd only been there for two years before. Like, it's not like he'd been, like, the man in the inner circle at that time. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just because he had all the dirt. (laughs) That's actually... You know, that's actually so feasible. At this time, when everybody's snitching when the feds are coming calling getting somebody who knows stuff you know making sure he's got a job and he doesn't have an axe to grind is a good idea yeah anybody who's been in vince's actual office during the real shit let's get them back in house the wbf started a working agreement with the jerry jarrett memphis territory this would continue off and on all the way into like 
2000, yeah. right? A long time. Somewhere in here, obviously, I mean, they hire Jerry with the idea that he can run the company if Vince goes to prison. God, they, the fact that they chose Jerry. It, I mean, I, they, the WWF practically becomes Memphis. And the, you look at the mid-90s, they're doing Memphis shit for years in there. Oh, yeah. Between the influence of Jerry and Jim Cornette, this just becomes a yeah. real Memphis shithouse. <laughs> Meltzer referred to Outback Jack as Outhouse Jack. God, he was so sleazy back then. Meltzer with the heat. I love that. Oh, there's another one in The Observer where Savage on the Arsenio Hall show said he had experimented with using steroids, and Meltzer responded, yes, and I've experimented with using a typewriter. (laughs) It used to be so much shadier back in the day. Now we only get that's Twitter Meltzer. We only get that on Twitter yeah. now. Oh, the WBF folded. Ah, sad. And that's why Ico Pro sponsors this SummerSlam because they got to get rid of that shit. Had to get rid of that shit. Yeah. Meltzer reported that WCW's weekly TV show in England was watched on average by 3.7 million people per week. What the fuck? Really? They they were on network TV and the WWF was on Sky Sports, which was a premium channel. I thought you were about to say like 30 people. That's (laughs) And WCW never runs England. Just never does it. And when they did try it when they got the bulldog and it failed. Yeah, but by then, that's that's years yeah. from now. No, they get the bulldog next year in '93. Oh, really? So they must have been like, "Oh, this is a slam dunk." Yeah. We got three million viewers and the bulldog, and they're just like, "No, we don't want that." People no. are gonna buy tickets, and they, I don't think they had any local promotion. Like it, it takes too. a street team to sell tickets. It must be said, too, this show was such an incredible outlier because British wrestling died in the late 80s. Like, it died so hard that they thought that wrestling was done in this country forever. Which is why the Brit Rest movement in the late 2000s was, like, such a special moment because it finally came back after 30 years. Yeah, that died a very different and much more depressing death. Yeah, it wasn't until TNA started running there that the fucking thing woke up again. Yokozuna began wrestling dark matches as Kokina, teaming with the Head Shrinkers. In 92, wow. He's like 19 at this point. He debuts at Survivor Series. God, he's so young. Yeah, he's a kid. Um, Ron Simmons defeated Vader to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Yep, that's what's happening on the other show. Can you tell Bill Watts is booking? It's just so funny how you can always tell who's booking what territory by what's yeah. going on. Like, it's funny the stamp people put on their shit. By which of their guys they push, yeah? Yes. Scott Hall debuted as Razor Ramon with the character being described in The Observer as a biker gimmick. Meltzer thought it was a biker gimmick? Yep. Dave, buddy. <laughs> Hang out at a lot of biker bars, Dave. Two people who have never seen Star- Scarface, Dave Meltzer and Vince McMahon. <laughs> I, 
I'm assuming he was just going by a report he got from somebody who was at the TV taping who didn't understand it. But that's very Maybe Vince funny. thought it was a biker gimmick. I don't think he understood it. He wears, wears vests. Yeah. And finally, the hammer. The Berserker tried to stab The Undertaker with a giant sword during a match on Superstars. Have you what? ever seen this? No! The Berserker comes to the ring with his giant King Arthur sword that he's pulled out of a slab of stone, hits the Undertaker with the flat end, and then tries to impale him with it, but Taker sits up and he instead stabs the sword through the canvas. That's... mm. When I watch Drew McIntyre do sword spots in WWE now, I'm always just like, eh, not comfortable with that. motherfucker. Yeah. To do a spot for Taker to do a spot with John Nord, where he's like, "Okay, I'm going to depend on Nord's timing to not stab me in the face." I don't really know about that, rough. brother. That would have been really unfortunate if he killed the Undertaker with a giant sword. <laughs> what do you even do if you're in the crowd for that show and just he just stabs him? I, I mean, don't... we kind of know they they would have finished the tape in. Oh yeah, they would. He would just had to pin him. Like, all right, I yeah. stabbed him to death. That's how you kill the dead man. They also would have made Undertaker keep kayfabe and like sit up and walk to the back with, with a, a fucking sword, sword in his him. Yeah, yeah. All right. So to get into the show, it's Monday, August thirty first, nineteen ninety two. For whatever reason, these early Summer Slams were always on a Monday and not Labor Day. Always the week before Labor Day. This so for if you're in America, you're watching this on like what, like a Monday at 5 p.m. Like this is like Monday night, probably I assume in the evening. But yeah, it's not. But the show was not. The, it was tape delayed. The show actually took place Saturday evening in England, and they taped it and broadcast it two days later. Imagine the freedom to be like, no one's gonna spoil this in the two days. Like, no one board no. doesn't get around like that. Now you couldn't do two minutes. No. Here's the thing. Um, I'm actually surprised in hindsight that they did their pay-per-views live because, yeah, there's no, like, it's not going to leak on any significant level. And you save so much money not doing it live. Those live satellite broadcasts are incredibly expensive. And you can make it look so much better by pre-taping. Like, for something like a a television show, like, Raw really works live because it needs to have the electricity of, like, anything could happen at any moment. But that's not what a pay-per-view is. You're just watching matches here, bro. Obviously, we're at Wembley Stadium in London, England. The attendance is announced at 80,355. Meltzer would report the legitimate attendance was 79,127 with 78,927 paid for a gate of 2.7 million American dollars. Those numbers, very important as we roll towards AEW all in at Wembley Stadium with the question of, are they beating those numbers? I think they're beating the attendance, but maybe not the paid. Yeah, that is the debate. And I believe that Tony Khan, I mean, obviously they could still have walk-up tickets. Like they Tony, don't know. Tony Khan's being a little fishy, I feel like. 
I would say that at this point, it's probably within like one or two thousand of the record, and like he's got to be sweating that shit. <laughs> Just start giving five dollars, you know, get those Taco Bell coupons, brother. Yeah, if he had thought tickets. about it, yeah, get those get Taco Bell $5 coupons out there. For the Chalupa, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the show is not a success on pay-per-view. It only does a 1.5 buy rate. That's 280,000 buys. That's down from a 2.7 buy rate and 405,000 buys the previous year. Price was 27.50, which I think was an increase. Um, that's probably part of the problem that they're raising their prices. That's about a $3 million gross for the company, but they saved money with the tape delay. Between the huge gate and the savings from the tape delay, They pro- the show was probably more profitable than the previous year, even with so many fewer people buying it. Oof. Yeah, but look, it's their pay-per-view business is on a downward trend. They don't have Hulk Hogan. Both of the main events are heatless face versus face matches. It's a weird pay-per-view. Especially like the sense, if you're buying the show, knowing that it's not live, knowing that it's face versus face, knowing that none of these issues even really existed more than two weeks ago. I, I doubt any, no, I don't think a significant percentage of people knew it wasn't live. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. But like it's just kind of like man, I don't. I I would not have bought this show, especially like the main events and intercontinental title match. Pass. <laughs> was this like the first pay per view you? Ever, I mean, I, I assume you didn't like get the pay per view, but this was this like the first pay per view you saw like on video though. Um, the first one. I think this actually was the first one I saw on video. Now that you mention it, um, it because. But it was only because I saw Ultimate Warrior and Randy Savage on the box, and I was like, dude, that looks really cool. I didn't understand what I was looking at until years later. And the videotape I got only had like four of these matches on it. In the dark matches, and there were several of them, Jim Duggan and the Bushwhackers defeated the Mountie and the Nasty Boys in 12 minutes and 33 seconds. I doubt that was ever intended to make air based on that. That length, that's ridiculous how long that went. Yeah, that that was born to be a dark match. There's no way. That had to be the warm-up match just for the live crowd. Right. Um, Papa Shango defeated Tito Santana in six minutes. I don't know if that... That may have been intended to make the air. I'm not sure. That was the... They shot that... So... Duggan, the six man was the first match. Shango and Tito was second. I don't think that that probably wasn't intended to open the show. I feel it seems like the LOD match was always going to open the show. Right. Wasn't Shango supposed to fight somebody else on this show? I just I remember reading something about that, but I can't remember who it was. He's been feuding with the Warrior all summer. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Made him puke, but yeah, I don't know. He had also been, oh, he had been feuding with, he feuded with the Warrior after WrestleMania. He had been feuding with Bret Hart on TV during the summer because Bret, and on the house shows, because Bret needed something to do because he wasn't working with Davey Boy on the house shows because Davey was home smoking crack. (laughs) That's funny every time you say it. It's not funny. It's horrifying. Like, you've just got Bret, like, Busting his ass on the road, having great matches every night. 
working the working out in the gym, sitting down at night, like writing out ideas for this match, and then Davy Boy smoking crack with Nightheart. It's like uh, in Rocky Four when you see Drago's workouts and Rocky's workouts, except yeah. if Drago's workouts were just that he was smoking crack in in the gym. And then Tatanka beat the Berserker in five minutes and 46 seconds. That was the second to last match on the show. So that one was definitely intended to make air and they cut it for time because the show was running too long. But even then it only goes five minutes. (laughs) Yeah. The show, but yeah, the show being taped saved Brett and Davey boy, because they would have gotten their time cut way. They would have lost at least 10 minutes of their match. If this thing had been live. Can you imagine? Like, this would not be the same at all. (laughs) No, and Davey, I mean, I guess they had to kind of call the whole thing on the fly because Davey forgot it anyway. But Davey's not in a space to ad-lib. No. And, like, especially, like, one of the things that makes that match so special, as we'll get to, is that it's like this grand athletic contest where they're just back and forth and back and forth for so long. And you've never seen a match like this in WWE before and what's going to happen if it only goes 15, it's kind of like, oh, I guess he rolls him up for the finish. All right. <laughs> we open with an Ico Pro ad. Yeah. <laughs> Ico Pro for everybody who loves their body. I'm glad they haven't cut this out, actually, because this is the kind of nostalgia I appreciate on the shows. Also, the I kind of want LA Knight to do this now and do his everybody thing. That actually sounds really good. Bring back IcoPro. <laughs> I tried to get my mom to buy IcoPro for me when I was a kid, but it was already oh, out of business when I was watching these tapes. Thought it was thought it was going to get you balked up. I didn't even know what it was. I was just like, oh, it's IcoPro. I want some IcoPro. Looks like Kelly Knight's been using his IcoPro. It does. It does very much look like that. And then we get a montage of the fans talking about who they think is going to win the big matches tonight. This is, this is fantastic. Daring. This is fantastic for a couple of reasons. One, it's just the passion they have for this product is incredible. Yes. Uh, two, they're all unbelievably 90s out. It's nothing but bright ass neon Full colors cuts, on this show. Yeah. I love it. And three, it struck me while I was watching that that there's like a seas of 10 year olds here, right? Those people are all 40 now. Yep. I wonder how many of them are going to all out. That's what I'm saying. Like, isn't that the target audience for all out? Like, I I feel like it would be fun. I don't know if, how if I were AEW, I would try to find a fan who went to both SummerSlam '92 and All In to like oh, interview yeah. them at the show. Like, of get your get your equivalent of Todd Pettengill to interview them in the crowd. Just yeah, throw like Mark Henry out there or whoever the fuck is the person doing yeah. that kind of thing to be like, how does this compare to the last time you were here? Oh, it's way fucking better. Then we cut into the stadium where they have a bunch of buglers play. It was this God Save the Queen. I couldn't quite make it out, but they play I a fan. This a very cool way to open the show. Very classy, very dignified. It's just breathtaking when you pan this stadium and you see this massive crowd in broad daylight. My favorite part about this is they show these buglers, but like, there's nothing to indicate that they're even at the stadium. You're just like close up on the buglers. And then it turns the camera around and you look out upon this sea of people. And it's crazy. Um, 
our commentators, Vince McMahon and Bobby Heenan, welcome us to the show. Heenan puts on a crown and said he's the king of England. Vince asks Heenan whose corner perfect is going to be in, and he won't answer. Not a big fan of Vince and Bobby together. It's just there's not no. a lot of chemistry here, not a lot of flair to it. Vince McMahon doesn't play along with anything at all, ever. Every time that Bobby tries to do a bit, Vince is just like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Back to the ring. Yeah. I really miss Jesse. Or, I mean, I know Gorilla was getting up there, but Gorilla and Bobby were so good together. Gorilla and Bobby. That's the Gorilla and Bobby called WrestleMania, but I think that was yeah. probably Gorilla's last pay-per-view. I think it was. I think it was. Yeah. I just don't think Gorilla had anything left. And that's understandable, especially for the travel. Like, for a guy like Gorilla in the shape he was in, as big as he is, to get on oh, a plane and fly across yeah, the Atlantic, tough. I don't know, man. <laughs> um, opening match. We've got Money, Inc. against the Legion of Doom. Money, Inc. come out first with Jimmy Hart. It strikes me just how long this ramp is. It takes these guys so... They're hustling to get down it, but it still takes them forever to walk this thing. The way that this place is set up is fantastic and fantastic in a way that like it's clear that they didn't have nearly like the planning and like strategists that they have these days for blocking these things off because fans are just all over the fucking place. There's like yeah. random pathways that like don't even really seem well formed with like cops standing in them. Fans are like behind the entrance so they probably can't even see anything. There's like. There's thousands of people who there's no way they can see anything going on in the ring at all. <laughs> they don't care. And like out comes DiBiase first and he like looks out upon the sea and he just gets this smirk on his face like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah he gets, gets to get back to the hotel early and get some room service. I got to wrestle in front of 80,000 and I'm going to be asleep by 930. Let's go. <laughs> get some blood sausage and some bangers and mash. Yeah. Uh, DiBiase wears all white for the only time I've ever seen, and he looks so good. There are a couple of people on this thing who are very smart, and maybe, like, there's an art to wrestling in front of a crowd this big, and part of that art is being able to be seen, because, like, there's just, if there aren't any big screens here, there aren't anything like that, like, you need to be able to be recognized from far away. And the two people who understand it the best are DiBiase and his all white and Savage, who is wearing the pink. brightest yeah. thing the world has ever seen. Neon pink. Yeah. And yellow. Yeah. They get it. IRS gets on the mic to say that if these British tax cheats would pay their fair share of taxes, the country wouldn't be so in debt. They said he said that they wouldn't have to lean so much on the royal family, yes. which I don't think that they do so uh, that was kind of a, a bunch of fucking leeches yeah and then in a famous entrance lod and ellering come out on motorcycles a uh, bold move to let pilled up as fuck hawk drive a motorcycle yeah what's the most dangerous part of this is hawk driving the motorcycle which they have him in the middle which is clearly so that like animal or ellering can help him <laughs> if he fucks something up <laughs> Or Ellering having a big-ass ventriloquist dummy on the front of his motorcycle that he can't see over. Oh, man, Rocco the dummy. Like, I had forgotten that Rocco the dummy was a thing. So when he's the first thing you see as part of the Legion of Doom, you're like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? 
This is when Patterson had retired at this point. I think this show was actually where he first came back. And Bruce had been fired. Like, who is Vince even working with on creative at this point? That's a great question. Was Jake doing some? I mean, he left. Jake's, so. Jake's gone. J- yeah, Jake, I think, may have been helping out a little bit. But then he wanted, like, Patterson's job and Vince wouldn't give it to him. So he quit. Maybe Alfred Hayes is still helping out a little bit. He was in, like, the early 80s. I'm not really sure who who else there is. J.J. Dillon, like, uh, who else? Yeah, who else works in the office at this point? This might be the closest <laughs> to pure, unadulterated Vince we ever got. It's all Vince's it's ideas. Right. Yeah, it's not yeah. good. Uh, I had really never watched Hawk super closely before this, in this match. He looks really weird. Like, he just kind of looks like he's going through the motions here. Like, he like looks like he, I mean, he's on pills say a million people brett said <clears throat> he literally saw him swallowing a handful of pills and washing him down with black coffee backstage before this match like i came into this show to look for that in davy boy so when i saw hawk doing it too it really yeah. stood out i was just like he's just standing there blank waiting for people to tell him what to do <laughs> yeah just like on rubber legs but, like, that's the thing, too. These guys have done these things so often that, like, the idea that a person who's, like, completely gone can still perform athletic <laughs> maneuvers is crazy to me. And Hawk ends up working most of the match. Yeah, he does the heat. Like, Animal's got to be the heat. hot tag because, like, Hawk's not going <laughs> to. I guess that was probably the calculation is, well, it can't hurt us if it's just him getting worked over on the mat, which is yeah. almost everything he does. Ted just beat his ass for a while and then tagged me in. Yeah. This goes about 15 minutes. It's fine. It's just like Hawk is a non-entity here. Um, I noticed when Hawk made the hot tag, they started shooting the match in really tight. And I think it's because he was, if not passed out on the ropes, at least like super gassed and had his head down. Yeah. They were like focused in on animal and they never really leave that. Um, Animal hits a big power slam and they get the pin after 15 minutes, like considering the condition Hawk is in, they did a pretty good job here. This was perfectly fine. It's such a shame that animal didn't have any charisma whatsoever. Cause like he, he really should have been a singles by this point, and I'm sure that he knows it, but he knows that he's not making any money by himself. Hawk, yeah, Hawk is gone right after this, and Animal gets teamed up with Crush for a little while. The number of fake Legions of Dooms that there were over the years, including Heidenreich. Well, yeah, after this, does Animal go to Japan and start teaming up with Kazuki Sasaki, or is that Hawk? That's Hawk, and they're the Hellraisers, and it's actually way yeah. better than the actual Road Warriors. That's awesome. Um, we go backstage where Mean Gene is with Flair. Gene asks why he's wearing his wrestling gear when he doesn't have a match tonight, which is a good fucking question. And he literally just says, like, I'm always ready. Ready to Woo! wrestle a match in the locker room? Why are you here at the building? Like, what purpose do you have? Gene asks, whose corner 
he's going to be uh, perfect. He's going to be, uh, he asks, you know, is it macho, man? And Flair just, he sells this so well. Where he's like, ah, he almost says something, but he doesn't. He's like, is it going to be the Warriors? He's like, and then Flair says he'll be in the corner of the winner. God, Flair's Ooh. so good here. And like Gene's so he good is. too, because Gene is so indignant that he can't find out the truth. How can you be planning to interfere in a world championship? How dare you, Ric Flair, besmirch the great legacy of the WWF title? I do love that this is the most obvious interference in the history of a World Wrestling Federation Championship match. Flair's just calling his shot. I will be interfering in this match. Yeah. Straight up. <laughs> uh, Sean Mooney then interviews Virgil about his upcoming match against Nails. <laughs> Virgil says he's survived the toughest streets out there and he'll survive Nails because he's too legit to quit. He says that the toughest street he's ever survived is the one outside Wembley Stadium, which no, oh, <laughs> I don't I think don't it know, is. That doesn't that doesn't bode well for Virgil if that's the toughest street he's ever been on. And like the too legit to quit thing, like look, I know MC Hammer was big at this point, but like come yeah. on, man. <laughs> oh, we cut back to the stadium. Nails is already in the ring. He's got the boss man's nightstick because he took it from him after he beat him with it earlier in the summer. I just want to say, I feel like we all know what Nails is going to do to Vince McMahon later on because of his pe- he didn't like his payoff for this match. And I feel like I want to do that to Vince McMahon for promoting this match in the fucking first place. How dare you put on Nails versus Virgil? How dare you? It's just an enhancement match. I don't know. I think people are too negative on Nails. Like, yeah, you bring in a prisoner to feud with the big boss, man. It makes total sense. That does make sense. In this era of wrestling, this made all the sense in the world. I know. But, like... Again, I don't want we've covered this show before and I've watched this show before, but I don't look at what the matches are going to be in advance. Yeah. So like when Virgil does his promo where he's like, yeah, I'm going to fight you nails. I was like, oh, <laughs> what do we do to deserve this? Why? Thankfully, they keep it short. Nails wins with a sleeper in less than four minutes. And then he beats up Virgil with the nightstick after the match. Only thing I want to point out from this match, did you see how weird it was every time Nails had to get out of the ring? He would, like, crawl out like he was crawling underneath some barbed wire or something. I didn't notice that. I've never seen anybody do it. Like, he couldn't just roll casually under the ropes. He would, like, gorilla, like, crawl down head first. Um... Backstage, Lord Alfred Hayes is outside of Savage's locker room, and he says that it's locked. Poor, sad Lord Alfred Hayes. It just spends his whole show trying to get people to talk to him, and nobody ever does. kind of wish we had gotten him on commentary here, actually, since it was in England. You're in England! Why the fuck wouldn't you? Or have him hosted or something. Then Mean Gene interviews Sherry about the upcoming match in which Shawn Michaels will take on Rick Martell as they fight for Sherry's affections. Affections which neither of them really seem to want, which is the funny part. It's kind of like CM Punk and Kane and AJ Lee or whatever. Not really that into it. She's real into it. She's very excited that these two young bucks are fighting for her. 
does no one comment on like it's Rick Martel and Sherry Martel? No one, no one has yeah. anything to say about that. Literally, <laughs> nobody's ever said anything about that on camera ever. Why? That like why don't we? We could have done something. She was. I mean, I don't feel like she was known. She was only ever Sherry in the WWF. I don't think she was ever Sherry Martel, right? Yeah. But I don't think they ever make that anything of that really anywhere. They were in the AWA together. Couldn't it just be like, yeah, yeah that's my evil ex-wife. <laughs> I was thinking sister, but sure. Yeah. Um, man, Sherry wearing an outfit that feels a little too revealing for 1992. Sherry's has everything hanging out of this outfit. It, she is... First of all, what's the what's the better outfit, this one or the Stephanie McMahon cat suit from last ooh, week? Ooh, Steve, 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 Steve. That's a tough, tough ask. Um, yeah. hmm. And Kusha's head, they're fighting for his affection. Yes, that's the dream. That's always been the dream. That's twelve-year-old Kusha's dream. Um, Sherry comes out to the ring here. She has to carry that big ass mirror that Sean has <laughs> all the way down this ramp. Rock. That's such a good rib. <laughs> Her arms had to be burning. Like, this thing's got to weigh 50 pounds, and she's got to carry it like a football field. I love that. That is such a funny visual and such, like, a dick move by Sean that he's making her carry that thing. Occasionally, he'll turn around and pose in it and then just, like, be like, you good? All right, and just keep walking. <laughs> um, so... The rule is they're not allowed to punch each other in the face. They've agreed to that. This is that's the most genius thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> isn't, isn't that a line in man where they're going over? They're like no punching each other in the face. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah, we're not monsters. Yeah. Uh, Martel gets the advantage and flirts with Sherry. They exchange pin, exchange pin combinations where they both pull up each other's tights and expose each other's bare asses. Love that. Of course, it's Shawn Michaels' match in the 90s. Yep. I was also struck by, like, in the 90s, if you stand across the ring from Shawn Michaels, you are an ugly, ugly man by comparison. <sighs> Rick Martel holding his own here, baby. Yeah. The model looks good. He's here in his, like, little tennis outfit. <laughs> The tennis sweater is the most heelish thing. Like, who? no one likes a dude wearing a tennis sweater. Not at all. And, like, especially to do it in England, where only, like, the rich fucks go to Wimbledon. Like, oh, look at this fucker. <laughs> uh, Martel and Michaels, like, square up, and they go to punch each other. Sherry gets on the apron and faints to stop them. And then both of them ignore her and fight up the ramp. And I love how she keeps, like, you know, peeking her head up to see whether they're looking and then going back down. And Bobby's all full of concern about her. And Vince is like, I just saw her stand up. And Bobby's like, oh, it's a miracle. She's back. Oh, no, she fainted again. Um... Sean goes to carry Sherry out. Martel punches him out. He carries Sherry away. Sean knocks him out and tries to carry her away. And then Martel throws water on both of them, and Sean chases Martel away. And Sherry screams in agony and then runs backstage to find them. 
got buried in the dirt sheets. I loved it. I thought this was great. I don't understand like what's bad about. I mean, it's just like a story. Like, it's there's not no match because it's not an ultra serious wrestling match. But it's a heel versus heel schmoz fest, and the fans yeah. love it. Like. I swore there was a segment where Mean Gene interviewed Sherry and he was like, damn it, woman, you're being hysterical. But that must be from a different show. That is a great great segment, though. I know the one you're talking I about. Remember, I can't remember what that's from. Maybe it's WrestleMania 9? I don't know. Oh. Um, Sean Mooney is backstage with the Nappy Boys and Jimmy Hart. They complain that the Beverly brothers are getting a title shot instead of them. And then, I don't know, there's something with them. It seemed like they were maybe going to turn face here because they're implying they're unhappy with Jimmy Hart not getting them a title shot. And he says, what, that, oh, Money Inc. are going to win back the title belts. Then the Nasties are like, you mean we're going to? And then we're going to get a title shot, right? He's like, yeah, of course. Somehow it's incredible. That in all of this time where managers are managing every single person on the roster in multiple matches a night, it never comes up that any of them are like, hey, why are you showing favoritism towards them? Why are they getting all the title shots? What about my title? That never happens. It's wild. Yeah, it seems like kind of a conflict of interest that he manages two different tag teams. Yes. Hey, uh, you managed tag team champs. Why don't you give us a shot? Uh, well, that would be awkward for me. Fuck you, Jimmy. Give us a shot or we'll kill you. Next up, tag titles on the line. We've got the Natural Disasters defending against the Beverly Brothers, who are managed by the genius and reads a poem. The fact, when we found out that he, like, literally was given, like, five minutes notice to compose all of these poems every night, like, the office would rib him by, like, never telling him in advance when they wanted (laughs) him to do it. It's like John Cena doing his raps on the fly. Yep. That was kayfabe. He definitely wrote those things out in advance. Of course he did. And the way he would, like, quote-unquote, prove it was real was he would do raps based on the fans' signs as if he couldn't have seen those on the monitor backstage. Exactly. In fact, I guarantee you that at least some of that stuff was written for him. Like, of course it would be. And, yeah, so Kevin Dunn would just be looking through the crowd like, oh, there's a sign, there's a sign. Uh, Here's what you can work with tonight, John. Uh, mean Gene interviews the, or well, I guess I should talk about the match. Uh, not much happens here. The disasters win in 10 minutes after earthquake hits a power slam in the butt splash. I wish this had not been on this show. Me too. God, the Beverly brothers. I just, what is it? What is the gimmick there? Um, that they're gay, <laughs> but they're brothers. Oh, yeah, they're not gay together. They're just... Oh, okay. They're just gay. Yeah. They're just, you know... A couple gay brothers. Yeah. Like that, That's the only thing I could imagine that the gimmick is. And they're rich? Yeah, I think they're rich, too. They're just a they couple of, like, like, prancing fancy boys, I guess, is yeah. the best way you could put it. This is some Memphis shit. I don't know. Uh, mean Gene interviews the Bushwhackers and then Alfred Hayes is outside of the Warriors dressing room. He says he believes Perfect is inside, although he doesn't indicate why he thinks that. It's some bad journalism, Alfred. Yeah, like, you don't know that news. shit at all. 
Going on air with pure speculation. I followed his footprints. <laughs> he tries to open the door, but a hand slams it shut. What? You should really lock that door. You know Alfred's peeking around. And then we've got Repo Man versus Crush. <laughs> what are we doing here? I, I mean, love that the, the, these are two members of Demolition fighting each other, but like they don't acknowledge. Not, I don't believe they ever acknowledged that Repo Man was in Demolition before. You can't acknowledge that Repo Man. Hey, you remember the most dominant tag team of all yeah. time? Well, one of them got a side job as a Repo Man. <laughs> God, he looks so tiny now. Yeah, he does. I mean, we always shit on how bad Demolition looked, but, like, at least they were bulky. Like, he's just, he looks like a totally, like, he looks like a totally normal dude here. He must have been on so many steroids just to look that bulky, because now that everyone's getting off the juice, he's dropped 50 pounds. It's On the other hand, Crush still looks awesome. Yeah. Crush always looked amazing. Um, it's a shame that he sucks so bad. <laughs> Five minute match here. Crush gets the win. I could have cut several. I mean, like could, we couldn't have gotten a Ric Flair match. I don't know who we could have worked with, but he wrestled Tito Santana on um, a SummerSlam Spectacular. That was a good match. I would have watched him wrestle Crush. Fuck it. Just but like, let's get him on the car. It just feels like you could have given him a win over somebody saying that because like winner gets a shot at the winner of the title match. Sure. I mean, Tito's probably a good shot for that. Uh, yeah. Well, if you really look at this card though, it's pretty thin on guys that you could actually wrestle Yeah. that could get you into a title match. That's the thing is at this point, it feels like they really only have three main eventers. They really just have flair and Warrior and Savage. Hogan's gone. Sid's gone. Jake's gone. You're not going to do Flair against Undertaker, as fun yeah. as that sounds. Brett's coming up, but he's not there, and I don't think anybody else really seems like they are coming up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Razor Ramon has debuted, but you know, he's only done a few squash matches at this point, but he's quickly going to wind up in the main event. Well, that's the thing, too, is that, like, there's a ton of heels that get left off of this, but that's because there's two face versus face matches on top. That's four matches that we could have had. Yeah. Uh, Next up, we got the WWF title match. Randy Savage defends against the Ultimate Warrior. Vince is still grilling Heenan on who sold out, and he still won't say. If I gave you a thousand dollars you out there who have not seen this show there's no way you could possibly predict how long this match goes for there's no way in hell it's incredible like everybody always clowned the warrior for not having any stamina dude had some long ass matches he did and i mean yeah there's rest holds aplenty but he doesn't seem blown up at any point by the way the answer is 28 minutes yeah Three Eddie minutes more down, than Eddie has to run down this ramp. Yeah. This match gets three minutes more than Bulldog and Hart. <laughs> Do you think this ran long? Yes. It feels like it has to. There's no, way, there's, no, 
Yeah, there's no way they put this on that they put down. Like when they were both timing the show out, they had this down twenty for twenty eight minutes. I mean, it was the whole segment had to be forty five. Yeah, and like I can't really tell you what part of it ran long. Like it seemed like the. From the time that, like, Flair and Perfect get involved, it seems like things are kind of haphazard. I don't really know if, like, things didn't go according to plan or what, but, yeah, it definitely ran long. Flair and Perfect came out 15 minutes into the match, and that's very, I mean, I don't, maybe that was very precisely timed, or maybe it was just, like, they had, you know, Savage and Warrior had a certain number of spots planned that they had to get through before they got to that. I don't know. But yeah, this match just goes forever. It's excellent. I think it was one of the best matches in this company's history to this point. Yeah, here's the thing. This match is completely forgotten. Like, this is never mentioned. It's not as good as their WrestleMania match. So, of course, yeah. that's understandable. It's not as good as, and it's not as good as the main event. Right. So, like, of course, it would be forgotten. Warrior and Savage have unbelievable chemistry together. And, like, I say chemistry. It's probably just Warrior listening to Savage and doing what the fuck he's told. But, I mean, this is... You see versions of Warrior when he wrestles Savage that you're like, oh, man, this guy could be awesome. Of course, he never will be. But, like, when he was in there with Savage, he was. Warrior comes out wearing a ridiculous creamsicle orange singlet <laughs> with muscles airbrushed on it because he's lost so much muscle mass. Yep. Um, and that's super fun because he blends completely into everything because somebody did not clue <sighs> him into the lesson that I said. Then out comes Savage wearing the brightest clothes the world has ever produced. And you could see him from space. I loved when Warriors music hit, they had this like super wide shot of the crowd. And I swear you could see hundreds of kids rushing through the aisles to get closer to the ring. Yes. It was crazy. They have all these like little like wide like trench ways for people to like get out and go to the bathroom or concessions or whatever. And you just see kids like leaving their seats and sprinting up. Yeah. Like I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah. It was like it looked like I don't know, there had been an explosion or something and everybody was running. Like it was really unnerving to see. Yes. Uh, should mention, neither guy has perfect with them. Well, of course, they're gonna make they're gonna make us wait for that. Yeah, no, not gonna reveal that right away. They shake hands, but then they shove each other, and then hilariously, they both have to get their entrance gear off before they can actually wrestle. Yeah, they start squabbling, but it's just like, oh, hold on, I gotta get my jacket off. All right, I gotta get my pants <laughs> off. Especially <laughs> savage, because that thing is really elaborate. Um, Savage is, of course, in his, you know, T-shirt and long tights that he would wear during his comeback, 91, 92, 93. I never really liked this look, but I think he just felt like it was a necessity with how much he had shrunk. And, like, I kind of get it. Like, it's iconic in its own way. When they show coming out, like in like old videos and stuff. Now it's this entrance. Like this is the one that they replay on WWE videos time and time again. 
And like when I think of Savage, this is the one I think of with the giant cowboy hat and like all the tasks. Oh yeah, I think the like, entrance gear, the entrance gear is fantastic, and I don't, I don't mind the long tights. I thought he looked great in WCW where he wear the long tights and no shirt. Yeah, I just, I don't think everyone's so paranoid that they're going to be thought of as small. Savage is still very muscular. He's just lean. Yeah. Like it's okay. Even like Hogan when he comes back and he's like not as built anymore i think he looked better but maybe that's my modern sensibility i suppose uh savage goes for an axe handle early and warrior hits him with a shot to the gut which is exactly what turned the tide in their wrestlemania 7 match i love that call back that he feels like exactly the kind of thing Randy. Yep. yeah savage is just like this is what beat me last time you're gonna go for it right away Uh, they trade the advantage for the first couple minutes. Savage uses a leverage move to stop Warriors momentum, which is the first sign of either of them doing something heelish. He then clotheslines Warrior over the top to the floor. Uh, they run through a series of big moves and near falls, you know, big suplex backdrop, a lot of two counts here. One of, I feel like Savage was the first guy to really, you know, embrace the near fall to a modern level. I think you're right. Um, it certainly wasn't something that was really prevalent in American wrestling at all. I wonder if the trips he made over to wrestle for SWF in Japan had anything to do with that. It could hmm. be. Might have seen it there. Or maybe that's just something that I want to believe. <laughs> Uh, 15 minutes into the match, Flair and Perfect come down the aisle, and now we enter, you know, I don't know whether I would, I'd say this is probably act two of the match. This is the introduction of the problem. Yep. Warrior hits a press slam. He goes for the splash, but Savage gets his knees up to block it. Warrior slams Savage, but he knocks down Earl Hebner in the process. Warrior hits an axe handle. He's got the match won, but Hebner is slow to count and Savage kicks out. Um, Savage then hits Warrior in the back with a knee strike and he knocks out Hebner. He follows up with a pile driver. Savage jumps in the ring and he helps Warrior up, but he holds him so Flair can punch him out. Savage doesn't see this because he's helping Hebner back into the ring. I love the mystery here. We're still not sure whose side they're on. They're playing this really, really smartly. And they just keep panning back to Flair and Perfect, like kind of murmuring to each other. And it's just like, what the fuck? You know that this match is not going to resolve itself until we see the like them interfere one way or yeah. the other. So you're just kind of hanging on their every movement. Savage hits the flying elbow. Warrior kicks out after a slow count. Warrior fires up. He hits a shoulder block, the press slam. He goes for the splash, but Warrior grabs his foot and Flair hits him with a chair in the back. Once again, Savage doesn't see this. Man, it's starting to feel like it's going to turn out Savage turns heel here, doesn't it? It really, 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 really does. As much as that wouldn't make any damn sense that him and Flair would team up. But like the idea that he would have to find help because he doesn't feel like he can beat the warrior by himself because he never has. 
That's why you bring up the The warrior literally retired him, cost him his career. The warrior beats his ass 10 out of 10 times. He needs help. And here comes Flair and Perfect being like, we can help you beat Warrior, but I want a title match. Like, sell your soul to me to keep that belt for one more week. Savage has Warrior set up for the flying elbow. Goes to the top rope. And you literally see him have a crisis of conscience up there. I never it dawns on him what's crisis happened. Of yeah, I never get sick of this crisis of conscience stuff, ever. I love it in every love match. Love it. You can just see him be like, well, I can hit him with the elbow, and I've got him beat. But it's the wrong thing to do. And, and he so has many, to make his choice. Yeah, so many times in his life he's taken that path because what he wanted was more important but the, God damn it, I'm not that man anymore. And he leaps not off the ropes onto Flair. I love that. He can win dishonorably or he can lose, but he can keep his honor. And he chooses to lose with honor instead. Bless him. Stupid, but the right thing to do. I mean, um, that's how you know he's a true baby face. <laughs> yeah. Savage jumps, tries to hit Flair with the axe handle. Flair blasts him with a chair in the knee on the way down. God, that looked brutal. Um, Flair then proceeds to put him in the figure four out on the ramp as Savage has been counted out. Warrior wins by count out. Um. Warrior recovers, he runs them off, and the two of them embrace. Weirdly, Warrior carries the title belt out. Yeah, I noticed that too. So he grabs the belt and he tries to hand it to to Savage, who's selling. And so Warrior's just like, okay, I guess I'll just take it then. It's like, hey, wait a minute, that's that's not yours. Not your belt. Yeah, you didn't didn't win it. You won by count out. Um, Should they have just done the Flair Savage title change here? It feels really weird that it happens on an episode of Primetime Wrestling. It really does. If you're dead set on getting the belts on Flair, you really should do a big title change at SummerSlam. Like, that's just how it is. It it feels weird to do it anywhere else. And, I don't know, you can find somebody for Warrior to work with. Doesn't really matter who you could blow off the Warrior Shango issue. Warrior versus Repo Man. <laughs> I mean, you have a million <laughs> heels on this roster. You really do. So two nights later, at a TV taping in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Flair beat Savage for the title. This is one of the most bizarre matches in wrestling history. They go out there and they, they, they wrestle for like 10 minutes at which point Vince sends somebody from the back out there to tell them to stop the match because he doesn't like the match they're having. So they literally just stop wrestling and go to the back. And then a couple matches later, come back out and do the match over again. Like, 
I can't I've remember. never heard of this happening anywhere. I else. never heard of Vince doing it. Anoki used to do this shit all the time. But but like yeah, Anoki would come out and be like, "This match sucks, end it." But like to make them do it again, they made them yeah, they literally go back out there, you know, 20, 30 minutes later and redo the match. And according to Bruce Pritchard, the match wasn't any better the second time. It's difficult to imagine what would have been bad about it. And maybe that's the answer to, like, why Flair's not on this show. I know, like, famously, he was having confidence issues around this time. You just didn't think he had it anymore. In which case, don't put the belt on him. (laughs) They're going to make him the world champion. I mean, I think it's just so he can drop it to Brett. I think he was just meant to be the transition champion to get the title to Brett. But here's the thing. Like, I, I like the way that this match plays out. I do. But if the idea is we need a a champ a heel champion to pass yeah, the belt on Savage to Brett, could be that just heel turn champion. Savage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What if it turned out neither sold out, but Savage just nut shots Warrior and pins him anyway? Yeah. It wasn't me, but who gives a shit? I'm still the champ. And then you could even put Perfect and Flair with Savage. Who cares? Like it, whatever you want to do. But, like, you need to get to Savage versus Brett because we've talked many times that Brett has so few big-name wins under his belt when he becomes the top guy. He beats Flair, but they didn't even show the match on TV. And Flair was, like, a shell of himself. If he beats Savage, Savage is the only guy left that it matters if you beat him. Like, he's the connection to the the, the years before. Brett... And that match would have fucking killed. Oh, that would have been amazing. You ne- it feels like it feels like Savage would have loved to put Brett over. Yes, they had an awesome match on a Saturday night's main event back in the '80s when Brett was still a tag wrestler. But like Brett being the choice of the guys from the '80s, like we'll put this kid over and nobody else. Piper did it, then Savage does it. Of course, Hogan refuses to do it, but that's neither here nor there. So in that match on the match, the TV tape in Razor Ramon came out, clipped Savage's knee and then Flair put him in the figure four and he passed out. And I think Flair won by pinfall, but Flair won the title for the second time. Uh, that match would air sometime in late September. So world title change on free TV for one of the uh, Hogan beat Andre on TV. I think that's it. I think all the other title changes before this have been pay-per-view or house shows. And then we're going to get a world title match at a uh, title change at a house show when Hart beats Flair, right? That's a house show? Yep. House show. Never. uh, Eventually released on Coliseum Video, but didn't air on TV. What a deeply whack time. We've had before this, what, seven title changes in 13 years? And then this year, yeah, they are really starting to pro- they are really starting to prostitute this title. So yeah, in the past calendar year, Undertaker beat Hogan for the title at Survivor Series. Hogan won it back from Undertaker at Tuesday in Texas. The title was held up. Flair won the title at the Royal Rumble. Flair dropped it to Savage at WrestleMania. Flair has won it back from Savage here, and then Flair is going to lose it to Brett. Like literally, seven, from title, like, seven title changes in less than a year. And if you like go from 90, uh, 91 backwards, it's what? Warrior, Hogan, Slaughter, 
Andre, then back to Sheik. Like it's been Hogan a minute. Savage. Yeah. Like there have maybe been 12 title changes in 30 years before this. And seven this year. That's bad shit. I mean, okay, we literally count them. So, like, Buddy Rogers is the inaugural WWF champion. Bruno beats him. Bruno holds it for eight years. Loses it to Pedro Morales. Or loses it to um, uh, Ivan Koloff. Pedro Morales beats Koloff. Pedro loses it to Stan Stasiak. Bruno wins it back from Stan Stasiak. That's six. The Bruno Billy drops Graham. it to Billy Graham. Billy Graham drops it to Backlund. Backlund holds it for six years. Loses it to the Iron Sheik. Sheik the loses no. it to Hogan. That's ten. Hogan holds it for four years. Loses it to Andre. Um, title is held up. Savage wins the tournament at WrestleMania four. Savage loses it back to Hogan. Hogan loses it to Warrior. That's 15. And then... Warrior loses it to Slaughter and Hogan beats Slaughter. That was 17 title changes in about 30 years. And seven in 365 yeah. days. <laughs> yeah. And even like 9091, they, I mean, relatively speaking, they changed it, you know, four times in less than a year. That was a lot. Yeah. And, like, obviously things are changing, and it's mostly because they can't figure out anything that's actually going to draw. But, like, the torturous loops they draw themselves in to be like, well, Brett's got to win it from a heel, or we got to get the belt off a of Savage so we can wrestle Razor. G- guys, you're making it so much harder than it needs to be. Also, it just feels like so many of these things are terrible for the credibility of this title. Like, yes. Ch- having the whole ho- – like – Undertaker beats Hogan for it in the mid card and then loses it back to Hogan a couple days later. But then the title's held up because Hogan cheated. And then Flair wins the title at the Royal Rumble, but he didn't beat Hogan in a singles match. And then Savage beats Flair in the mid card at WrestleMania. And then we change the title on free TV. And then Flair beats. Brett or Brett beats Flair in a house show match that no one ever saw. It just feels like if you were trying to destroy the credibility of your title in the year leading up to this, you would have done exactly what they did. And the missing piece is that we were supposed to get Hogan Flair at WrestleMania, which yep. if Hogan wins there, I'm not really sure what happens after that. Because like uh, Hogan, not the, I mean, Hogan. I think that was, Part of the problem was they didn't have a finish for that match because Hogan was going to go away and, you know, he, Flair wasn't going to beat him. At best, they were going to get a DQ. Maybe you could do a cage match and Flair could win by escaping the cage. Huh. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Maybe the answer here is Razor. Or, like, maybe Razor can beat Hogan because he's coming in as a heel. I don't know. But. Yeah. Too fu- it, yeah, like Hogan's not around anyway. Right. Uh, back to the show. Mean Gene interviews Perfect and Flair. He is very indignant about what he's just seen here. And Flair's having the, the time of his life. Thing. Yeah. He's living it up. Uh, they announced the attendance. 
And I think they cut intermission at some point here because it seems to have gotten a lot darker, which means it's time for The Undertaker's awesome entrance. Thank God for actual darkness. When you think about the failed times that they've tried to like wait until it was dark. <laughs> the Undertaker and Bray Wyatt. Yeah, the sun, the sun in San Francisco just would not go down. But here, it worked. Yeah. The Undertaker rides out standing on the back of a hearse. This is so cool. This is one of his best entrances ever. Yeah. Uh, I think the most notable thing about this match is Kamala would later claim in a shoot interview that he found out that the undertaker got a $500,000 payoff for this show. And he only got 10,000. There's no way Taker got a half million dollars. For this show, the show wasn't successful enough for that. That's the thing. We haven't really talked in detail about that, but this show really didn't make any money. <laughs> I mean, it did okay, but I think the rule is the wrestlers get like a third of the profit from the show, or the, at least the net gross. And like the show's gross was only about $6 million. So by that rule, and that's not even like, that's $6 million before they pay taxes, before they pay the rental fee for the stadium, before they pay for satellite time. Even going by the $6 million, that's only $2 million to pay everybody on the show. If Taker got five hundred k, you would have to imagine that Savage, Warrior, Brett, and Bulldog would all get more because they were in more prominent matches. Right. And just that like would wipe out almost all the money for the wrestlers. Like, it just doesn't add up. I would bet that Taker made 500K for the year. Yeah. There's no fucking Dude, way. A million bucks is a good year in 1992. There's no way he got that for one show. And he's not, like, the Undertaker yet. Like, his, this is, like, yeah. second year in the company. He's not get, He's this, not getting top money. And this isn't a huge match. This is... No. It's a fucking squash. I guess it's the third match on this show, but there's such a gap between the top two matches and everything else. Like this is a joke match and it was at the time. Like we can pretend what like it Kamala wasn't. Kamala still doing in wrestling in 1992. The, that's a character that wasn't exactly great back in, you know, 1985, but nope. 1992. Uh, he had his house yeah. show run with Hogan in like 88. And like that, it was long in the tooth then. Uh, this only goes about three minutes. Um, like, Taker does some stuff, and then he gets distracted by Whippleman, Harvey Whippleman and Kim Chi. Kamala gets the advantage for like literally 30 seconds. <laughs> literally the heat segment lasts 30 seconds, and then Taker makes his comeback. He goes to Tombstone Kamala, but Kim Chi jumps in the ring, and we get a DQ in under four minutes. Thank God they kept it short. That's all I can say. They probably, they probably got their time cut, but I wouldn't have wanted this to go any longer than it did. Yep. Uh, Kamala hits a couple splashes, but Undertaker sits up and Kamala runs away. That's 
about all you could do with this, really. I don't know why we're helping him keep his heat. Taker should have just hit him with the tombstone in 30. Uh, they got, they're going to have a coffin match at Survivor Series. And I assume Undertaker got a million, two, assume Undertaker got a million dollar payoff for that show. I mean, coffin match is over. How much do you think he made when he wrestled Shawn Michaels in the main event of WrestleMania? Probably uh six, seven million. <laughs> yeah. Have to wonder if he got a million dollar payoff for that show. That show didn't do very well. That show didn't make any money. So I don't really think so. I mean, although the thing, I guess the thing about that one is like. WrestleMania was so pricey by then that they probably grossed like 15 million or something, even though it wasn't a huge success. And the thing is, too, is like whatever money it did draw was just because of Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. So they probably should have gotten good paydays for that one. I mean, JR has said like the biggest checks he ever remembers cutting for a single night. Like he said he cut a couple million dollar checks. It was basically like, Rock and Austin for WrestleMania 17 was just about it. Maybe Hogan and Rock for WrestleMania 18. Though, I don't know. They weren't even in the main event. That's true. That's actually the problem with that one is I'm sure Jericho got the shaft on that one, but you had to pay Triple H a ton of money. Yeah, I bet you Triple H got like 900 and Jericho got like five. (laughs) Yeah, Jericho got like five grand. He could like barely afford his hotel room with what they paid him. What do you think is the least amount of money a WrestleMania main eventer ever got paid? And why is it Bam Bam Bigelow? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was probably pretty bitter about that one. It might not have even been six figures. What about Sid for WrestleMania 13? That one really bombed. I mean, that one only did like 230,000 buys or something like that. And they fired him not long after, so they might not have even paid him for it at all. (laughs) Might not have paid him. Oh man, yeah. I mean, that WrestleMania's company gross was only like it was less than three million dollars, so it was not a lot of money to go around there. I remember hearing a story about Vince doing like one of his, you know, talent, one of his company meetings, and asking if anybody has any questions. And Owen Hart raised his hand and said, yeah, I've got a question. When do we get the second half of a WrestleMania checks? And Vince's like, uh, there is no second half. That, that was the whole check you got. I love that because in that moment, Owen Hart transformed into Hulk Hogan and was stroking the yeah. Fu Manchu. Like, hey, brother, where's the other half? Where's the other half? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Famously, Bundy said that Hogan got 500K for WrestleMania 2. And then asked Vince where the other half was. Fucking bless Hogan. But like it, he should be asking that because it's all built on him. Entirely him. Like, yeah. It's the hey, only Vince. reason anybody was paying for those shows. You made five million. Give me my half, brother, because I'm I drew all of this. I uh, believe this is where Tatanka versus the Berserker went on. Uh, way too late in the show for that garbage. Yeah, I've never seen it. I doubt you have ever seen it. And we're not going to talk about it. No, I assume maybe it was on the DVD release. Wasn't on the VHS release, because that's the one I watched no. as a kid. And that one only this had would, like five matches. This is a rare show I would actually like to own on DVD. The VHS that I had as a kid, I just looked it up, had the Legion of Doom match, the Natural Disasters match, Warrior vs. Savage, and Bulldog vs. Brett, and that's it. That was it? Yes. Wow. 
it was like a really cheap, cheap, cheap like version. I don't know why so much of it got cut, but it was literally like thing. an hour long. I thought, yeah, I thought they had to keep the tapes to two hours, which would you, but usually the way they would do that, they would usually avoid cutting entire matches. They would usually just edit them down. Just clip them, yeah. Maybe there yeah. were like highlights on the show, but like yeah. that's, those are the only matches I remember. But yeah, I mean, this show was not crazy long. It was all, you know, two hours and 45 minutes. Right. Which was a blessing. <laughs> Um, Mooney interviews Bulldog in the locker room. He sort of blows off the question about the divide within the family. He says, once the bell rings, him and Brett will be like strangers, but he hopes the family can be reunited once the match is over. This is a pretty kind of good a dick, promo. Actually. Yeah, this is a dick promo, but this is a pretty good promo from Bulldog. And then Hart cuts a promo, which is what, probably definitely the best of his career to this point. Yeah, very impassioned from Brett. He's very upset that Bull, about what Bulldog said, that he's going to act like he doesn't know Brett once the bell rings. And he points out that like Brett introduced him to his wife, talks about all the holidays they've spent together, all the time they've spent traveling together on the road. God, it must have been in the back of Brett's mind to be like, yeah, yeah you don't recognize me as family because all that crack you smoked, motherfucker. <laughs> you couldn't even not smoke crack this summer. They expect that. Nobody's ever mad about Neidhart. They just expect it from Neidhart. Yeah, of course. What are you doing hanging out with Neidhart? Of course you're going to wind up smoking crack. <laughs> I mean, I don't know when Davey moved to Tampa, but that's probably part of the problem is – I, he probably didn't know anybody other than Nightheart in Tampa. He didn't have anybody else to hang out with. That's probably true. There's a bagpipe performance, and as a surprise, Roddy Piper comes out and plays the bagpipes. He was not promoted to be on this show, so this was a fun surprise. According to The Observer, this was some kind of favorite of Piper that like it helped him get into the British equivalent of the Screen Actors Guild. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So like maybe different rules with their union, but this was you know considered a live performance or something. And bless Piper, he shoot plays them fucking bagpipes like nobody's business, man. Great job. Yeah. Yeah. He can actually play. It turns out. I did not know what to expect when he started doing it, but he fucking shredded. Yeah. Then Moody interviews Diana Hart Smith, and it's time for the main event. Uh, okay. For the Intercontinental Championship, we've got Brett the Hitman Hart defending against his brother-in-law, the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, proud son of Manchester in the United Kingdom, against the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. The excellence of execution. What a matchup this is going to be. Bulldog comes out first to a ridiculous pop. Just massive reaction here. When you think about it, how many like giant hometown pops can you really think of? There's Flair and Charlotte when he comes back and rejoins. That's a good one. Wins the Horsemen. Punk, punk in Chicago um, a couple times. And then this... Like there are some that are pretty big. Like Regal would get a pretty good reaction sometimes in England, and like yeah. some 
uh, Britt Baker and Perry and uh, Pittsburgh gets pretty big oh, reaction. Yeah, Pittsburgh. But like, we've never seen a stadium full of people who have one particular guy as their guy. We've never thousand people just scream at the top of their lungs when his music comes on. Yeah, Drew McIntyre definitely did not get this reaction in Cardiff. He was over, but he wasn't this over. Yeah. Because there's only one notable British wrestler in the world. Yeah, at this time, eh, Gentleman Chris Adams doesn't count by 1992. Yeah, like in the post-Big Daddy era. (laughs) Him and Bulldog would have gotten along well, though. Oh, God. Similar (laughs) interests. That that story of uh I don't, Bruce and Chris Adams like after a show just go into somebody's trailer and Bruce fucks this dude's wife <laughs> and then they just bail out in the middle of nowhere. Man, what episode was that? The globe was that the global wrestling whatever episode of something to wrestle with? I don't even remember which one it was. I just listened to it like a minute ago because I'm re-listening back to the old ones. But yeah. The one and only time he ever went out with Gentleman Chris Adams. Oh, yeah, that would be the only time I'd go out with that guy if we ended up in a trailer park and he was, I don't know, engaged in some recreational activity, I assume. Yep. And then he disappears and he comes back having just plowed the guy's wife whose trailer it is. (laughs) As Bruce and the dude are just like sitting around watching a baseball game. Uh, Bulldog is re- led to the ring by a young Lennox Lewis. This is years before he'd become the world heavyweight boxing champion. Here, he's the British Commonwealth champion. I think that's incredibly cool that there's a British heavyweight title. I agree. Like, as much as we have, like, seven different heavyweight titles split up in the States now, and it kind of makes boxing hard to follow or get behind... Uh, the idea that like each country would have like their own yeah. world champion and then they all get a crack at the world champion. That's the way it should be. Yeah. We got it's like how we had the NXT championship that Gunther held for like three years. Yeah. I, I just love that idea. That like it's like the NWA title. Like once you win the world belt, here comes the British champion and the Mexican champion. Yeah. Um, Bulldog has long tights and braided hair. I liked, I liked the braided hair, actually. I thought that was a good look for him. Braided hair in this way on white people is a, a real hit or miss proposition. But surprisingly, he pulls it off here. I like the be- I like the red, white, and blue beads in the hair. That's a cool look. This is like the coolest he ever would look by a lot. Yeah, this is his best. Uh, Brett comes out second. I'd say he got a bit of a mixed reaction. Definitely some booze. Yep. I mean, he's a heel. Heel. He's got a black top and pink bottoms on his tight tights. Um, I feel like Brett would always use his gear for symbolism and how bright it would be would be based on like how much of a baby face he was like. When he wrestled Yokozuna at WrestleMania 9, he was an all-pink because he was a pure babyface. When he wrestled Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12, he wore all black because, you know, he was the heel in that match. 
Uh, when wrestled Austin at WrestleMania 13, he was in the half pink, half black. So I think he's symbolically saying he's kind of you know toeing the line here. I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, he's quiet and confident as always here. Obviously, it takes him a while to get to the ring because he has to walk this massive ramp. He's got those stubby little legs. There's a wild atmosphere at the start of the match. This is like a Premier League championship match. Yep. Uh, Davey starts off with a shoulder block that knocks Brett all the way out to the floor. Brett gets Davey with a series of takedowns. I'm pretty sure this is where Davey tells Brett he's fooked and he forgot everything. You can like, see you can a see look Brett on be Brett's like, face. Okay, yeah. Brett like being like, okay. And then he starts calling spots. And Brett would say that this is the only time you can ever catch him calling spots because he had to be so, like, he had to call them so loud to get Davey to hear them. You can see him calling spots dozens of times in this match. Yeah. Every single time they do a move, they then immediately have to go into a hold so that Brett can tell Davey what's going to happen next. And I'm not even good at spot. Like, I'm not even good at spotting this. Like, I think I've trained myself to ignore it. But, like, there are some moments here where, like, the camera so closes up on Brett when he has his head, like, right behind Davey, and he's, like, talking into his hair. And you it's catch, literally like, like, okay, suplex me, but I'll drop down out of it and get you with the roll-up. And it's got to be, like, 30 seconds worth of instructions because yeah. Davey Boy doesn't know anything about what's going to happen next. <laughs> to be like okay and that is the transition you're gonna get me in a headlock and i'm gonna shoot you into the ropes it's like this is just the stuff you're supposed to do by instinct yeah literally this is the conversation that you have backstage about the match before you do the match but he's got to do it in the ring while hiding that the conversation as it's incredibly loud in there. So it's like a quarterback trying to call play as the opposing crowd is screaming. Yeesh. Uh, they exchange holds for the next couple minutes. Uh, Bulldog is more powerful, but Brett is quicker and he's the better technician. Uh, Davey goes for a crucifix, but Brett hits him with a backdrop. Breath then hits an inverted atomic drop and a bulldog, which how often did somebody bulldog the bulldog? Very seldom. Yeah. Brett goes to the top, but Davey powers up and throws him off. But bulldog's advantage is short-lived as Brett uses a leverage move to throw him out to the floor. Brett follows up with a plancha to the floor and then picks Bulldog up and runs his back into the ring post, which I feel like was just about the only heel move of the match. Yeah, surprisingly, despite the fact that Brett's obviously playing heel here, like there really isn't a lot of like heel shit going on. Maybe he had a lot more of it planned, but like Davy Boy can't sell limbs. Davy Boy can't play to the crowd. Davy Boy's not going to sell properly. He's not. Brett can't wrestle under the assumption that Davy Boy's going to carry his end of the bargain, you know? 
I also don't think Brett doesn't want to go really heelish here. Brett knows he's trying to get himself over out of this. Like he understands that he can get himself over by having a great match and losing here. Like the British fans are going to be behind Davy boy, but everybody watching on TV is going to say, Oh, Brett wrestled such a great match. And he was, you know, so classy after he lost. Yeah. He knows they're doing the handshake at the end. And he may already know that like they're planning on going with him and like as the year in towards the end of the year, because Vince may have already talked to him about it. So like, he's like, well, it's fine. Brett keeps working the back. He hits a Russian leg sweep and a backdrop. Bulldog finally gets some offense in, and he manages to run Brett into the corner to get out of a sleeper. Uh, Bulldog tries to press slam Brett, but Brett crotches him on the top rope. He crotches Brett on the top rope. I assume that was a botch, but according to Brett's book, that's that was the planned spot. That's what's supposed to happen. It still didn't look like it came off right. No, I think he was supposed to crotch him on the top rope. Instead, he crotches him on the second rope down, and Brett crumples up like a dead spider. So, with that, with that sleeper hold, I saw Brett tell a funny story that, like, he got Bulldog in the sleeper hold, and he told him, like, okay, let's work this for, like, two minutes. Instead, Bulldog immediately crawled to the ropes and grabbed the ropes, and Brett was so mad at him, he, like, sh- kicked him in the ribs. Just as frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> like, he had just had enough of this bullshit. He lost it for a second. Can't blame him. Um, Bulldog with a huge... Huge vertical suplex where he holds Brett up for about 30 seconds. He then signals for the running power slam and he hits it. Everyone in the stadium knows that's the finish. Like Bulldog just hit his finishing move right in the middle of the ring. Brett kicks out right at two. Oh boy. Nobody saw that one coming. No, and, like, really, that's all Davy Boy's stuff. Like, he only really has the yeah. two moves. He doesn't – you've never seen him win a match with anything other than the running bulldog, or the running power slam. Davy stacks him up on the ropes, hits a gigantic superplex. Okay, that's got to be the finish. Like, a superplex after everything they've done – 20 minutes into this match. That's got to be it. Brett kicks out again. What a hero Bret Hart is. It's almost like he constructed this match entirely to make himself look good. Yeah, that's the thing. We always talk about Shawn Michaels doing this to guys. Yeah. This, this is basically just the Shawn Michaels diesel match. Like where Brett's just like, well, I'm going to do everything myself and I'm going to look amazing and everyone's going to remember me. <laughs> Um, they both go down on a double clothesline while they're on the mat. Brett grabs Davy's legs, laces them together, and then rolls over and gets him in the sharpshooter. I loved when he would do this. This is the coolest thing. This is the thing that's missing. You see a lot of dudes do the sharpshooter in matches, but like they always like do like the whole setup and everything like that. Yeah. This is the shit that Brett would do where he would yeah. turn it everything into the sharpshooter i just he doesn't even need to stand up and he gets you in his kill shot submission hold like you're never safe not for one second 
cranks back on it. The crowd begs Davy Boy to fight out of it, and he summons the will and the strength of all 80,000 people in the stadium to crawl the ropes and break the hold. And like at that point, the state, like we haven't really talked too much about the crowd reaction here. Like it's been really strong throughout, but it hasn't been like passionate in specific moments necessarily yeah. here. The crowd is now going ape shit because like they, yeah. they think Davey's going to lose. Absolute just hysteria from the crowd at this point. They're so desperate for Davey to win. They both make it to their feet. Brett hits the ropes. Davey ducks down. Brett sees the opportunity to win the match right here. He goes for the sunset flip, but Davey gets one over on him, sits down on his chest, and hooks his legs. And bless Davey for I'll, this, because like Davey does this. If Davey had just kind of sat down on it like casually, this would not yeah. have worked. But he cinches that motherfucker up. Yeah, grabs the legs as he's going down. This is such a perfect finish. I love this. You just think about this. There's no way you could possibly get out of this. No, like, you didn't, especially Brett. Like Brett just is not strong enough with his legs to kick Davey out here. Like with him sitting on your chest with your legs hooked, he gotcha. Like if Brett had had more momentum, he'd have gotten Davey over and he probably could have pinned him. But, you know, he was gassed at the end of this long match where he'd taken so much punishment and he just didn't have the force on that roll through that he normally would. It's just so genius to me the way that this is laid out. And like, so the excellence of execution in the end is yeah. the guy who gets outsmarted and out-wrestled by Davy Boy. And he gets by pinned with a roll-up. By his big, dopey brother-in-law. And, like, how bitter that must be for Brett. That, like, for one moment he underestimated Davy and he got caught. Yeah. Maybe Davy's a better wrestler than he gave him credit for. But also, this puts Davy over without making Brett look a shred less. Brett doesn't yeah. just take a a running power slam and get pinned one, two, three. Like he just gets caught. Anybody could get caught on any day. Like this yeah. looks makes them both look great. Crowd absolutely explodes. One of the loudest pops I've ever heard. Um, if you've never seen this footage of the crowd literally like leaping to their feet in the background of the shot, it's wild. Vince on commentary says something unusual for him. He says, we've, we've clearly witnessed one of the great contests in wrestling history. Just doesn't sound like Vince, but I think that's how much he liked this match and how much he was putting bread over here. We've talked a couple times. Like, I don't think Vince really enjoys a lot of wrestling matches. So when he does enjoy one, it's like really special for him. Like this was a notable one. Uh, what was it like? Beware of dog, where he's just sitting in the dark with like yeah. the power off, watching Austin wrestle Savio Vega and being like, "This match rules." Yeah, he realizes how good Austin is because he has and nothing how, else to do. He can't do anything. He's just sitting there watching the match. Yeah, without that power outage, maybe he never finds out how good Austin actually is. But he has to sit there and watch, and he's blown away. Maybe this is one of those like you just you don't ever hear him talking about the matches he loves. 
it's clear that this is one of them. Uh, Meltzer gave this one four and a half stars. I think I would have gone the full five for this one. This is a great, great, great match. Man, um, especially for the time. Like, this was the best match in WWF history to this point, I think. Steve and I have basically been playing a game back and forth for like a week now. Like, what was the greatest match in WWE history, like, lineally? So, like, yeah, what had happened? What was the first greatest match? And then what replaced it? And then what goes on? Boy, this is right up there, man. I think it definitely at least had a minute where it was the best until it was yeah. probably beaten by Owen and Brett or the latter match. Yeah. But. Owen and Brett held the belt for an hour before Sean <laughs> did it with the latter match. God, that's so fucked up. <laughs> they literally had one hour where they had had the best match in company history. Um, uh, Meltzer said it was very similar to the Rude versus Chono match for a few weeks earlier, but Rude versus Chono was better. Fuck off, you dipshit. <laughs> Look, there is no it's bigger. Not, it's not that horrible Rude Chono match, right? They had a good no. one in Japan, right? Okay. Yes, this yeah. this is the good one. Listen, I'm gonna tell you right now, like that those matches are not similar at all. And like, as <laughs> there's no one who's a bigger Japan mark than me, believe me. But like, Except fuck off, you fucking hipster douchebag. Brett teases walking away without a handshake. Also, like, he compl- talked about in his book, he talked about how annoyed he was with Davy Boy here because Davy Boy was spending this whole time looking at Diana when he was supposed to be looking at Brett. Hey, he's looking at his wife like, oh, what's my wife doing here? He just, like, keeps trying to catch Davey's line of sight, being like, no, the the angle is between us. The drama is between <laughs> us, not between <laughs> you and her, you dumbass. Fucking Davey. Oh, Finally, man. like, he said it got to the point where he almost just, like, walked away for real, but he knew he couldn't do that. So eventually, he just kind of grabs Davey's hand so he can shake it, and he hands him the belt and hugs him. Yeah, it buries Brett if he walks away. Like that's who, it hurts him more. Diana gets in the ring. She hugs both of them. Fireworks go off as Bulldog celebrates with the belt. Just an incredible scene. A perfect way to close this incredible show. I mean, I, I think you'd have to say this was the best pay per view in company history to this point. I think the only contend, the only other thing you could say would be WrestleMania three. This is the funniest thing, because, like, objectively, if you listen to our commentary throughout the course of the show, this is not a great show. There's a lot of just absolute nothing on the show. It's basically just a house show with a really hot main event. But even with that said, yeah, you're right. It's probably the second best pay-per-view in company history to this point and would continue to be for years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fair question as to when they actually surpass this. On pay-per-view? God, is it WrestleMania, WrestleMania 17? WrestleMania 10? 17, I, yeah. It's, it's a while. Yeah. Oh, but I, I don't know that the visuals of this show have ever been topped. I don't know that I've ever seen a more visually beautiful and striking wrestling show than this. 
And there's something chaotic about it that makes it perfect. These days, all the stadium shows kind of yeah. generally look the same. They've just kind of settled yeah. on a way that stadium shows look. But here, where they were making it up from scratch, this is only like the second or third stadium show they'd ever done. Like they're just making it up. And, and it just first first out first outdoor one on pay. They'd run some outdoor stadium shows, but only you know they had house shows that they you know filmed for video release. This is the first right. one that was on pay per view. And like in another country, like yeah. they are just flying by the seat of their pants. And there's something beautiful about that. You can feel when something's original or the first time. There's no like no matter how good All In is this week, and I'm sure it's going to be great. If we're really going to enjoy it, it won't ever feel as special as this did. The first time's always the best time. Absolutely. So yeah, a, a wrap for this show. I'm so glad we got to cover this again. This is I just I could talk about this all day. I just find these two big matches so compelling, and especially the Brett Davy Boy match, both in and out of the ring. I think it's just one of the best and most interesting wrestling matches I've ever seen. Absolutely. And you know what else is really good and interesting is this a segment of Stump Steve that we're about oh, to do before no. we get out of here. <laughs> All right. So this one was a tough one because there are very few shows that have ever aired that Steve knows more about than this one and wants to talk <laughs> about more than this one. So here it is. There are 30 people who wrestle on this show, including in oh. the dark matches. Fuck me. 18 of them were tag team champions at some point. Oh, God. Can you tell me the 12 that weren't? Okay. The Berserker. Correct. Oh, I can't remember if Tatanka and Matt Hardy held the tag belts together, so I'm going to pass on Tatanka for now. Um, uh... Can I look at the card? Is that yes, you can. You can look at it. Okay. I need a reminder of who was actually on this show. Um, and we're talking WWF tag titles. Yes, or like in this company. Some itera- yes. This company, in any iteration of the belts. Okay. Could be World Tag Team, Universal, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Kamala was never a tag champion. Correct. Um... Ultimate Warrior, never a tag champion. Correct. Yeah, Randy Savage was never a tag champion. Correct. That's four. Um, neither Beverly Brother was ever a tag champion. Correct. Six. Um, man, lots of tag champions here. Nails, yep. never a tag champion. Correct. Virgil, never a tag champion. Correct. Ooh, Papa Shango, Charles Wright in all the iterations of that character. I have this feeling like the right to censor might have been tag champions, so I'm going to skip him for now. Tito obviously was. Um, Duggan, never a tag champion. Correct. Bushwhackers, never tag champions. Correct. Okay, we're at 11, right? Correct. Okay. The Mountie was a tag champion. 
the Nasty Boys were tag champions. LOD was, Money Inc. was, Rick Martel was, Shawn Michaels was, Natural Disasters were, Crush was, Repo Man was, Oh, this is so interesting. Yes. So you've come down to it. You've narrowed it's it either, down. It's either Tatanka or Papa Shango. One of those two people is a one-time, very temporary champion. But which one was it? And you are right. The tag team that both of them would have done it with was that Matt Hardy time or the right to censor. But which one held the belt? I'm going to say it was Tatanka, who was never the tag champion. And you are correct. He was not a tag champion. Oh, my God. Champion. I got it. I could not remember. I Because I know him and Matt Hardy like had a shot against Eminem for the tag titles. Could not remember. They easily could have won him and held him for a week. It wouldn't have surprised anybody. Yes, but I believe uh, the right to censor beat the Hardy Boys for the belts and held them very briefly. Like, so, yes. Probably a week, yeah. Um, trying to think, who here is the most obscure tag team champion? Crush holding it as the third man in the Freebird rule with Demolition is pretty obscure. That is pretty obscure, for sure. Um, I had to look up most of these because I was not 100% sure about really any of them. <laughs> I thought there was a <sighs> decent chance that one of the Beverly's won at a different time, but it turned well, that out was the, that was the thing. I, that was the thing. I don't remember who the, like who they actually who the Beverly's actually are. Is it one of them? Is it Minos and Wayne Bloom? Yeah, that's correct. I almost I threw in managers like, because what, I, I can't tell you what characters they were over the years. Is the thing. Yeah. If I had thrown in managers, I think I would have gotten you because Mr. Fuji is a five-time tag team champion. Oh, yeah. I didn't. I wouldn't have remembered it. Yeah, him and Saito were tag champs, like, back in the WWF days. But that seemed unfair. <laughs> yeah, that would be tough. Uh, I'm trying to think, would that have gotten anybody else? I don't think Lanny Poffo ever was. No, I don't think anybody. That's why I didn't do it. I don't think anybody else even yeah. came close. No, they wouldn't have. Okay. All right. I am now Dude, one in seven in Stump Steve, the stupidest thing I've ever come up with. <laughs> getting your ass kicked. I really am. I got to make these harder. I love this. It just gets to show the world how smart I am. Apparently. I, I like to believe that people are playing along at home and think that you're stupid for not getting it faster. And that's all that gets me through this. I'm sure there's some people, because I feel like every time we do one of these, like we get tweets and comments about the most obscure thing that we forgot about or got wrong. Yeah, I'm so paranoid about these that I, I go through it. I spend like the whole show in the background just researching to be like, it is 30 people, right? And it's 18 that are chat team champions. Because if I say that that's wrong, someone in the comments is going to fuck me up. Okay, before we get out of here, do we want to quickly talk about All In, which is going to happen this weekend? Yeah, pretty exciting, huh? Yeah, big show. 80,000 people to see a very strange card. You know, with all the complaints about this card, I just want to point out that I love the card that they've constructed. Like, really? It, you love Will Ospreay versus Chris Jericho? Okay, no, I don't love that. That is a gigantic Dave waste. Meltzer said that that had the, poten the most potential to be a Bret Hart British Bulldog style of match. 
the fuck do you mean in that what Chris Jericho will show up coked up and Will Ospreay will have to wrestle the whole match for him? Because sure, I believe that. Chris Jericho will blow up and say I'm fucked at some <laughs> I'm point. I'm fucked. <laughs> Time to f- fulfill your destiny, Osprey. Well, literally, what in I the love, two- what I love is the similarities between this show and SummerSlam '92. In that our main event with Adam Cole and MJF feels like a weird combination of Brett versus Davey and Savage versus Warrior as a story. Yeah, like, it's like one of those it's best like, friends and who's going to turn. I, I love that idea. I am really completely into that. Um, and I I love that as the main I event. I love about that match. There's so many plausible endings to that match. Like. Either guy could turn on the other guy. Either guy could beat the other guy clean. Like MJF could lose and then get so mad at Cole he turns on him. I there's a bunch of possibilities that all feel equally plausible here. Yeah, either guy I could walk out with the belt. I have no idea what's going to really happen. Um, and but I don't even feel like it's just that match. Here's the thing: they have a pay per view like literally a week later, so they couldn't yeah. throw any everything onto the show. But even all of these multi-man matches have a ton to them. The Swerve Strickland shit going on with Sting and Darby is fascinating. We're going to see Jay White and Kota Ibushi share a ring again. We're going to see the Golden Lovers on this show. They could have promoted just that match and nothing else. It could have been Repo Man in seven matches other than that, and I would have been all for it. Um, FTR and the Young Bucks is apparently going to happen, even though Cash Wheeler pulled the Glock out on some jabroni. Fucking stop listening to Arn Anderson, goddammit. I love how Dax talked that shit about how he was an old school wrestler and Cash Wheeler just, you know, walks the walk instead of talking the talk. Yeah, Cash Wheeler, who really never talks, Dax does all the talking for the team, is the one who's pulling guns on people in disputes in Florida parking lots. Um, Adam Cole and MJF challenging for the tag belts on the pre-show. Could they hit, That's are they gonna awesome. Hit, are they going to hit that double clothesline? The idea that they're going to win the tag belts and then Mega Powers breakdown in the main event kicks ass. I think MJF has to retain so they can do MJF versus Punk in Chicago. But, man, it feels like they should build to that more. So maybe it's MJF and Cole do a rematch in Chicago based on the finish here. I think I it's know. a disaster. It's, it's paper- these pay-per-views are week, week, week apart from each other. It's not great. I would have MJF and Cole not wrestle on that show at all, if I'm being honest, because I don't think Ooh. that you need that. Especially yeah, can defend the real world title. Yeah, exactly. Keep them apart for now. But it would be a disaster to like hot shot MJF to a different feud when this one's drawing like crazy right now. It's incredible how good this has turned out to be. Like, I don't think anybody had high hopes for like I had, I'm not a big Adam Cole guy. So I was not really into the idea of them having a feud, but I feel like everybody just kind of rolled their eyes. at The idea of them having a team together in that tournament. And yet they've somehow become the most dear in bro friends. This was Dusty Rhodes's dream when he came up with the lethal lottery originally, we're going to yeah. make a bunch of interesting storylines out of this. We're going to find chemistry between people that we never knew that they could have. And he never found anybody who got along at all because nope. he was putting together like a man and Jushin Liger. 
Uh, but yeah, the bro chachos are incredible together. Shout out to Big Bill and Brian Cage. Finally, a good use of both of those people. Man, Big Bill is on fire. Big Bill's the man. Big Bill's going to get a call from Vince real oh, soon. He sure fucking is. Um, why is Sting Joker Sting again? Because he fucking loves it. Sting and Darby Allen showing up on the end. Sting showed up at an indie That's show wild. to get revenge on AR Fox. That's he the really coolest is becoming, thing ever. He really is becoming Terry Funk. Yeah. But like in a positive way, like he's not washed up in disaster. He's just enjoying it. You know what a really good trivia question would have been? When is huh. the last time Sting wrestled in England? Ooh, fuck. Did he ever? Did he ever Has go to those TNA shows in England? WCW toured England, so I'm sure he wrestled on the WCW tours. Those were back in like the early '90s, though. When TNA was touring England, he wasn't there. He had already left. Yeah, so he probably hasn't wrestled in England since like 1993. That's fucking crazy. But that's why this show is drawn so well. You think about these guys. Punk probably hasn't wrestled in England since 2013. Jericho's probably the same. Yeah, Jericho, it's been years. You know, MJF ha- has A lot of these guys have never wrestled there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, Ibushi, Omega, they ever wrestle in England? Well, yeah, they would do tours there when they were in Japan, because Japan has a pretty good relationship with Revolution Pro. And, like... The only guy from England you actually needed was Osprey because he's yeah. their guy. <laughs> and they had sold all the tickets before they even started promoting him for the show. That's the thing. And I kept telling you, like, you kept being like, what big matches did they put on? And I'm like, they should put garbage on here. They already sold the tickets. <laughs> what I'm curious about is how it does on pay-per-view. But, you know, for me, I just I need to buy it for the spectacle. Like, I just need to buy it to see what this looks like. This is what I'm saying. Like this show that we were just talking about had Bulldog versus Bret Hart, which was not a huge main event to anyone except the people actively in the yeah. arena. Um, and then just like kind of a bunch of bullshit. But we remember it fondly as one of the greatest shows of all time because of the spectacle. You yeah. don't have to load it down with all sorts of awesome shit. We're going to love whatever they put on because it's going to be an amazing thing to behold. And this is going to be live on pay-per-view at, I think, like 1 p.m. or noon in the United States, which, big fan of afternoon pay-per-views, actually. This is old man me, my old man tendencies coming out, that I'm like, oh, good, it'll be over by dinner time. Oh, I'm so excited. I got to work after this thing. Normally, I never get to see pay-per-views on Saturday, but I fucking get to watch this one. It's on Sunday. Oh, right. Yeah, but... Even so, like, I usually work nights. So I'm going to get to get rid of this thing and, like, actually go off and live my life. Yeah. Can't wait to see this, and I'm sure we'll have some reaction to it next week. Also next week, we will go somewhere we haven't gone in a long time. The WWF New Generation, as we cover In Your House Mind Games featuring... Uh, perhaps the best match of Mick Foley's career as Mankind takes on Shawn Michaels in the main event. What a compelling and strange matchup that is. Like, for years, 
Mick Foley said that that was the best match of his career. And if it was anyone other than Shawn Michaels, he would probably also say it was the best match of his career, though for yeah. Shawn, it wasn't even the best match of the year. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, can't really remember what else is on this show. Um, I know there's some incident with the ECW guys, but yeah, it's going to be kind of a surprise to me when I turn it on. Um, the only thing that I know for sure is on this show is Jose Lothario versus Jim Cornette. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.